Hi, my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. I'm trying to begin by apologising for the amount of time it's actually taken me to get this episode out. Uh, various things, most notably work, have got in the way. Um, but we're here now and I want to begin with a um, quick plug for the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com or you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. So without any further ado, I'm going to get on with it and this is going to be the first of three episodes dedicated to the films of Ridley Scott. I hope you enjoy it. Film is a visual medium. This may seem like a fairly obvious statement, yet not all films are born equal. I'm proud to say I've never seen Big Mama's House, and I will never see it. I can however make one assumption about it, which if I'm wrong please do correct me. And that assumption is that the film will be as visually bland as a newly decorated public lavatory. I have no idea who directed it, much like most of the films that currently come out of Hollywood. The tragedy, of course, is that faceless, no-name directors become trapped in a cycle of increasing mediocrity. With studio obsession on weekend box office and DVD sales four months later, the time of the director's star has been on the wane for some time. Yet there is a core of directors who buck the trend, whose name alone ensures fans will attend a film regardless of negative reviews to see that director at work. One of these for me is Ridley Scott. Often his films have a polarising effect on critics and audiences, often needing time to be truly appreciated. Regardless of critical opinion on a given film, the world Scott creates and how he shoots them is often reason enough to hand over your well-earned money. In turn this could be used against Scott, 
His obsession with detail and cinematic perfection is often in lieu of more engaging stories and fully rounded character development. But lest we forget my opening statement, film is a visual medium. It tells stories through images, and Scott's eye for the cinematic often elevates more average source material into far more passable fare. He's a director who has always worked within the Hollywood system, yet still has a startling diverse filmography. Scott is also one of the few directors currently working who can be described as a businessman of the industry. Scott Free Associates has been one of the world's most successful commercial production companies for 40 years. He's also part owner of one of the world's most iconic film studios, Pinewood, the Mill Effects House, and of course his younger brother Tony, Scott, is something of a Hollywood legend himself. He's also a director who has never failed to embrace the changing face of the industry, not only working with some of the biggest stars in the world, but also recognising the explosion in home video market by putting together some of the greatest DVD and Blu-ray packages that have ever graced the format. This episode will be the first of three dedicated to Ridley Scott's work, and although my introduction might suggest that these shows are going to be something of a blinkered fanboy appraisal, I can readily assure you amongst his body of work there are films that I consider to be quite poor. One rule I will be adhering to is that the films I will be watching will be the cut identified by Ridley Scott as his preferred director's cut. We have seen in recent years a number of his films re-released in different versions. Some, however, are not director's cuts in the truest sense of the word. In the case of Alien, I will not be discussing the alternative version featured on the Alien Quadrilogy box set. With Blade Runner, it will be the final cut, and Legend will focus on the director's cut featured on the Region 1 Special Edition release. In keeping with Ridley Scott as a champion of the special edition format, there will be a supplemental episode to the three that will essentially be a review of the various DVD and Blu-ray packages that won't feature on the site feed and instead be available for download from the blog directly. Born in 1937 in South Shields, Tynham Weir in Northern England, Scott would graduate from Arts College with the original intention of following a career in design before eventually deciding to further his already accomplished photography skills. He would eventually end up on Madison Avenue, very nearly becoming a fashion photographer for one of the many advertising agencies there. Instead, however, he landed a job as assistant to documentary filmmaker Don Pennebaker. One of his earliest assignments would be working on Primary, the revolutionary documentary about JFK's attempt to become the Democratic presidential candidate. Returning to the UK, he would work for the BBC on a variety of television shows including Z Cars, and in 1968, Ridley and Tony Scott would form Ridley Scott Associates, a commercials company that by the time Ridley Scott would direct The Duelists would see him already made 2,000 plus commercials. It was here that Scott would master his craft and the mechanics of filmmaking. It was also at RSA he would work with a new generation of directors such as Alan Parker and Hugh Hudson, whose visual style would be honed and perfected on the short form of the commercial. Perhaps his most famous work at RSA was for Hovis and the much-loved and cherished Bike Round that since its airing has fueled the southern stereotype of the North forevermore, despite actually being filmed in Dorset. RSA has expanded into music videos and continues to produce commercials for some of the biggest brands in the world. Incidentally, its directors include all of Ridley Scott's children, who in their own right are supremely talented filmmakers. On a side note, I can strongly recommend the daughter Jordan Scott's recent debut, Cracks, which hopefully will be the start of a major film career for her also. For anyone interested in Scott's pre-feature film career, I can recommend seeking out his first short film, Boy and Bicycle, starring younger brother Tony. It's quite a strange film that follows a boy cycling around an unknown town in northern England through desolate streets and rubbish-strewn beaches. It would be a stretch to say the film is a masterpiece, first film sailed in R, but it certainly stayed with me for some days after I watched it. The titular boy on his bike lies in bed listening to his parents argue. 
from a POV shot the camera pans around his bedroom as a voiceover begins a stream of conscious thought process that will continue throughout the film. Responsibility says Tuffy. The longer I lie here, the worse it gets. You can hear people outside doing things. Downstairs. Never look worried. Like rig there, on the dot as usual. Punctuality is a virtue. Get yourself into a deep enough punctual rut, then you don't have to think, so you don't worry. The camera's movement is meant to reflect the boy waking up, and having seen it a couple of times, there's a kind of dream logic to it, which perhaps would leave open the interpretation. The whole film is in fact a kind of daydream anyway. As a child, I would go for epic explorations of the areas surrounding the village where I lived. There was a tangible sense of fear and excitement and wonder, and Boy in a Bite will capture these feelings. Living in a small village, it was also at times very boring, and although in an urban setting, the streets the boy cycles around are desolate, underpopulated, and quite bleak. You can see how such an environment would ignite the over-active imagination of the boy, and the sheer joy he takes from simply riding his bike around is palpable. The film's sound design is also interesting, in how it changes from birdsong to random noises. This is probably more of a practical directorial choice, given the scenes with the boy and the bike are clearly being filmed from the back of a car, meaning it would be impossible to really hear what was going on anyway. Regardless of this, the soundscape is one of the most distinctive parts of the film. In keeping with the visuals, it's also hugely experimental and enhances its dreamlike quality. Shot in black and white, and what I think is safe to say is 16mm, the film is also visually sparse. In several shots, the background fades to white, no doubt a limitation of the camera's ability to take in light, but it does also enhance the desolation and atmosphere of the town. Scott experiments with different camera angles throughout, a particular favourite seeming to be shooting from high and low angles. You can certainly see that he is enjoying what he can do with a camera, and you can tell he is also having fun with the character. In one scene, the boy presses his mouth up to a window of a sweet shop. Scott films from inside the shop, showing the boy's mouth slide down along the window. It's both comical and weird at the same time, especially with the voiceover working away in the background. 27. Ernie Bianco. 27. Dealer Generalissimo. The nice people shop here. Plaster fruit splits. From the good old days. Flypaper and ceiling. Woman in front, folding grubby ten bob. Seen better days. Eyes screwed in sig smoke. Shaves when it shows. She ought to try the wax treatment. Maybe you ought to tell her. Excuse me, madam. A moment of your time. For a small consideration, I can rid you of your airy complex. One treatment. Put wax on, rip it off. Rotten bugger. The film's most impressive scenes come when the boy gets to the beach. The stereotypical view of the British coastline isn't necessarily a good one, and in Boy and Bicycle, the beach is one of the most unappealing places I've ever seen. The sea looks utterly freezing, the beach itself looks a bit like Dunkirk after the evacuation in World War II, complete with rusting anchors and debris. In the film's standout scene, the boy looks into a puddle before some drops of rain begin to fall into it. At first I actually thought it was fish trapped in the water, and I can't really describe why it took me by surprise so much when I realised it was actually raining but for some reason, the scene just actually stayed with me. Boy and Bicycle is an interesting introduction to Ridley Scott's films. The short film is often a hard thing to pull off, and certainly this is an assured piece of filmmaking with the trademark visual flair and eye for the beautiful. <laughs> 
duelist demands satisfaction. Honor for him is an appetite, an obsession to kill. No apology is accepted, no quarter given. Only death will satisfy honor. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. And I demand an apology! Strife without reason, a quarrel pursued for its own sake. Pharaoh intends to kill you. Gentlemen, prepare to advance. Nobody understands why you fight with Arnold. I believe you feed your spite on him with no more sense than a nasty, blood-sucking louse. If he so earnestly desires to kill me, he will kill me. Damn it, kill him. Keep away from him. Keep ahead of him. Put your trust in Bonaparte. With this ring, I renounce love. certain blind look. He has that look, don't you think? The Duelists isn't a typical debut feature. By the late 1970s, Scott had already produced and directed over 1,000 commercials, and at just over 40, that it was time to begin making feature films. The Duelist was not his first attempt at making a feature. That would be a film based on the gunpowder plot written by the same writer as the duelists, Gerald Vaughan Hughes. Scott had been unsuccessful at sourcing funding for the film and decided instead to find an alternative story, one that was public domain, eventually finding Joseph Conrad's The Duel, based on the true story of two hussars in the Napoleon army, who over the course of many years fought over 30 duels. The story was perfect given it was public domain and Scott would not have to pay anyone for the rights. Gerald Vaughan Hughes was commissioned to adapt the story into a screenplay and Scott began sourcing funding for the film. Eventually it was Paramount who supplied the budget of £900,000. It's difficult now to think of Ridley Scott as a low-budget independent filmmaker, but so desperate was he to have the film made, he actually put up the completion bond himself and wavered his director's fee. For anyone who's been involved in film production or any kind of creative endeavour, you certainly know that a great deal of luck is required. Scott spent months trying to persuade Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine to appear in the film, only for Carradine, who was at the time also a pop star, to have a number one hit in America. Carradine wanted to go on tour to promote the song, but was eventually persuaded to take part. Scott also had to appease the local mayor of the town near where they were shooting, in order to gain access to the various locations around it. As sheer coincidence had it, Conrad's original story of the tall duelists had been written about men local to the area. Scott was shown the original reports of the two men's duels. 
he had by complete chance decided to film in perhaps the most historically accurate location possible. Known for being a stickler for authenticity, I wouldn't be surprised if he had some kind of sixth sense for such things. Scott chose cinematographer John Tidy, himself a feature film novice who had previously worked with Scott on many commercials to shoot the film. Co-produced with David Putnam, filming began in September 1976, almost entirely on exterior locations in near constant driving rain. The Duelist is an epic story told in the most intimate way. The film's time span is over something like 30 years for its two protagonists, Thoreau played by Harvey Keitel and Dupois played by David Carradine, who after a seemingly innocuous disagreement begin a series of duels that escalate during the course of their military careers. Keitel's Thoreau is a vicious vengeful type, constantly enraged by the sense of dishonour he feels Dupois has done him. Representing the working classes in Napoleonic France, Thoreau is the type of character the revolution was supposed to liberate from the shackles of the ruling classes. Dupro is the total opposite. An entrenched member of the social elite, he is rich and no doubt from good stock. Dupro is never snobbish or arrogant, he is very noble and kind to those around him, played with real charm and charisma by Carradine, who throughout the film tries to avoid Thoreau, repeatedly trying to settle the disagreement in an amicable way. The film doesn't have epic battle scene and cast of thousands, and in reality is all the better for that. The Duelist is a character study about the notion of honour and class and its effect on its central protagonist's lives. The story begins in rural France. A young girl shepherds geese up the road before being greeted to the site of Thoreau about to duel the son of the local mayor. This opening scene of the Duelist established almost immediately the style and visual language of the film. Firstly, the location is real. There were no indoor sound stages for the film. Scott wanted absolute realism, and true to his eye for location and the visually arresting, the backdrop of the rural duel is a bizarre structure that appears to be built on stone stilts. I can only summarise that it has some kind of flood defence for whatever is stored in it, but it gives the scene an extra visual element through the architectural choice. Scott spent a great deal of time personally visiting locations, often simply walking around smoking a cigar looking at how the light affected them through different times in the day. The opening duel between Thoreau and the mayor's son gives a clear indication of how they would proceed throughout the film. In an age where action scenes often last most of the film, the duelist fighting scenes are short, violent and decidedly unshowy to eyes accustomed to more Hollywood orientated fare. Credit must be given to fight choreographer William Hobbs who eschewed Hollywood convention and stuck to absolute authenticity throughout the film. As much as I love the films like The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, the sword fights are not about killing each other. They're about looking good for the camera. In The Duelist, the fights are about two men trying to kill each other. Scott moves the camera into the fight using shot reverse shots from perspective of the two opponents, their swords jabbing at each other and directly toward the camera. Perhaps the word to use would be visceral. I prefer instead to use the term shit scary. The Duelist fought only using diegetic noises. Whether or not there was any additional foley work done in post, I don't know, but the clanking and swooshing of swords puts us right in the middle of the action. There's no wittier sides from Thoreau at his opponent except for a ha when Thoreau finally scores a kill and the soundtrack kicks in. The Duelist is often cited for the realism of its environments, none more so than the interior scenes. 
We expect the norm for period dramas to show decadence and vastly lavish rooms complete with huge chandeliers and paintings depicting important figures. Yet when we actually look at paintings and pressings of the period, the reality is often very different. The gulf between rich and poor was indeed vast, there was no real middle class. Officers of a similar rank in the army have huge gulfs between their wealth. The officers' mess when we are first introduced to Dupreux isn't exactly what we would call glamorous, which is reflected throughout all the film's militaristic interiors. The walls are bland, which with very little hanging on them. The room's light predominantly comes from candles. Scotland cinematographer John Tidy used Barry Lyndon as a reference for the film's visual style. The candlelight and natural lighting in the scenes have a glow around them that gives especially the more static interior shots a similar aesthetic to paintings, which was a deliberate reference to works of the time. When working on a limited budget, a filmmaker is faced with a series of choices to be based around compromise. Clearly in the case of the duelists, Scott's one area of zero compromise was the film's visuals. Of course, the rest of the film isn't exactly lacking. The performances are excellent all round, as is the art direction and music. But the look of the film is one thing that is consistently impeccable throughout. When Dupreux is dispatched to inform Thoreau he is confined to barracks at the local madams, the composition of the scene is also highly reflected of the two characters' different backgrounds. Fro stands amongst a group of what appears could be elements of the upper class. Instead he is simply in a high-class brothel, the fact being he would be completely out of place in a more respectable gathering. I think it's what critics of Scott actually miss. We could have a scene of dialogue where Fro expresses his disdain for polite society over his preference for the bordellos and bars, but Scott knows this would be pointless and opts for a far more subtle approach. The Madame propositions Dupreux, who politely declines whilst Thoreau watches on behind her. Through visuals and a simple gesture of manners, the two men's vastly different personalities are established, as is one of the underlying causes of the subsequent duels between them. It's the kind of exchange we see a lot in Barry Lyndon, in particular reminded me of the scene where Barry invites guests over following his thrashing of his stepson. The way in which his invite is retorted shows the polite manners and customs of the time. The first duel is born from a moment of rage by Thoreau, and in the visual style of the fight reflects this. The camera is right amongst the pair as they fight. The odd thing is that I find myself slightly detracted trying to work out what the fight is actually about. Your duty is to victimize me. Am I mistaken? You have chosen to hunt me out in the drawing room of a lady toward whom I feel Sir, the deepest... Sir, I your inexpressible sentiment. But I can assure you that the hunting was no choice of mine. You have insulted me. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. And I demand an apology! This is too ridiculous. Really too ridiculous. A proper general's poodle. Can you fight? I see no reason whatever for us to fight. What reason would you like? Shall I spit in your face? Shall I cut a chunk out of your backside, or would that be too ridiculous? How do you get back to your general now? Through the window? Hmm? I believe you're really quite a madman. You draw your sword. You draw your sword. Oh my God, I'll teach you down the street like a chicken. Thoreau is adamant Dupreux has done him wrong. This may seem like first like poor character motivation or something like weak storytelling. In the same way, writers sometimes construct a situation that the sole purpose is to cause conflict, even when it's very clearly contrived. But in this case, it's actually central to the core theme of the film and is actually addressed later on. Many years later, Thoreau can't recall why the duel began either. He tries to attach its reason to a slight Dupreux made against Napoleon, 
but we, this might actually be a lie in order to ma not make him look like a petty madman. An early recurring visual motif seen throughout Scott's works begin in the duelist, which is a steady zoom out from an object to reveal the rest of the scene. Zooms are something we don't often see so much in modern cinema, and I actually think that's something of a pity, as when done well, it's a really striking stylistic choice. In the first case, in The Duelist, we begin a plate of fruit and zoom out to reveal Dupreux in his quarters in his doctor friend played by Tom Conti. The image of the fruit at the beginning of the sequence would be familiar to anyone with an interest in art of the period. It's a visual motif repeated throughout the film, and again I think this moments like this that critics would in fact misinterpret it as visual self-indulgence. Whilst the zoom is happening, the characters are talking, the dial is moving the plot along, why then simply stick to a shot reverse shot? The pair's second duel is for the record my favourite of the entire film. The opening wide shot is utterly stunning. Scott waited for magic hour before filming, which would at first seem like folly given the limited amount of time he would have to shoot. However, we could expect to see an escalation in the pair's duelling. Logically, we could assume that this one would be far longer and more technically intense than the last. There is present in the scene a real dark sense of humour, a highlight being the sheep waiting around in the background, and as the pair are about to go for it, Dupreux stops and sneezes. It's a fairly ludicrous little moment and temporarily takes the tension away before the scene begins again and the duel starts. When the fight does take place, it's over in a matter of seconds, all in one take, leaving Dupreux with a serious wound to the shoulder. According to the etiquette of the time, Fro could accept the duel as satisfied. Instead, he refuses. Clearly, it's only Dupreux's death that will satisfy him. Unable to carry on, Dupreux knows that Fro will come after him again. As Dupreux lies in the bath being nursed by his mistress Lara, the psychological impact of the duels begins to take their toll on him. It is abundantly clear now that his life is entirely defined by the hatred Fro has for him. His only escape is the codes and conduct governing the rules of dueling. Only officers of equal rank could duel. Dupreux therefore can seek safety in military promotion. He is not a reluctant soldier, yet is a way of keeping himself out of Thoreau's way. Using smoke to add atmosphere and diffuse light is something we take for granted. It's been used so often in films, adverts and music videos since the 1980s, we probably don't even notice it. Clearly Scott was a fan, and what is quite amusing is how during the course of the film, the smoke makes an appearance because there are actually people within the scene, either burning leaves or lanterns. Come the end of the film, and the final duel, smoke washes through the ruins for and Dupreux fighting. There's absolutely zero reason for it to be there. It is suited to be natural fog, but regardless it looks utterly stunning, especially when the sun's rays shine through it. The cinematography throughout is quite dark. During the making of the film, it was almost constantly raining, and was of course filmed during winter. From a personal perspective, winter is my favourite time of year, perhaps giving me a natural bias towards the film. However, I don't think I would be alone in when I say the film's look almost subverts the traditional hot historical epic. Often the cinematography in such films is about lush colours and visual density. The duelist's colour palette is decidedly autumnal. You can feel the warmth from interior shots with their soft glows and muted browns, and the chill of the exterior scenes with the sun hanging in the sky. The film's third duel is preceded by Lara finally realising that life with Dupreux will not be possible as long as Thoreau is alive. In a film where romance is governed by contemporary custom, a poignant moment arrives when Lara simply writes goodbye on Dupreux's sword. It's a slightly melodramatic touch, perhaps, but as a literal translation of live by the sword goes, it is wholly pertinent. When we do finally get to the third duel, we cut straight into it towards the end. The juxtaposition of silence before of the clanking of sabres is jarring. Both men are covered in blood and clearly exhausted. Of all the duels, this is the most violent. They are now fighting with sabres trying to lop rather than stab. It's also a sign of how future duels will be fought with different weapons. It's also the only duel to be fought indoors. 
in this case a basement with sun shining through the small windows. Were it not for the blooded mess of Ferron Duprois, it would be a beautiful image, and perhaps indeed that is the point. The elegance we associate with the period is shattered by the two men who are trying to kill each other. There is no final resolution to this duel, both men simply collapse from exhaustion and fall into a heap. In one camera movement, Scott ends the fight but suggests the story will go on. We track back and pan away from the pair to a young boy, Scott's son, watching on. It's a beautiful, graceful shot showing complete mastery of timing and subtlety. By not having a conclusion, we know this story is far from over, and as the camera moves, so does our anticipation. What next for these two men? We then jump to 1806. Both men have moved up in rank, therefore making another duel a reality. This time, however, the stakes are higher. Thoreau has been waiting for another attempt at Dupre, and as such, the next duel will be even more lethal than the last. Before we get there, however, we have another scene between Dupre and Lara, who, following the death of her husband, is now a prostitute. Far from feeling like filler to simply drag out the anticipation of the next duel, the scene serves to remind us of the toll time has taken on the characters. Although moving up in rank, Dupreau is no different from the last time the pair met. He still lives in fear of Thoreau, knowing that Thoreau will always pursue him regardless of what rank he or status he is. How is my ten? One year's gone astray. He died of typhus in the epidemic last July. Very sorry. Were you married? I never heard. Yes. Right at the end, poor boy. For all the good it did. Widow's weeds aren't much help to a lady of the garrison. So now I beg and strike up friendships. Laura, go back to France. There's only grief to be got from following soldiers. My chance. He said, go to that fool, Armand. He'll take you on again. This time he'll kill you. Thoreau has indeed ruined their lives. It's a melancholy scene that is shot so beautifully by Scott with the smoke drifting into the scene and the sun perfectly lighting the cameras. It's at hard times sometimes to truly digest the tragedy that is unfolding on screen. Duel 4 represents a massive escalation. The men are to be on horseback and charged towards each other. As Dupreau approaches, we see that the men's fights have now become a spectator sport. Other officers are there for the spectacle complete with breakfast and servants. The early morning mist lingers in hearts with heavy doses of smoke. It's the first time we see Dupro scared, and the film reflects this with a radical departure stylistically. The music begins to build as we cut to a close-up of Dupro's quivering hand. The slow zoom in adds to the intensity. We then cut between the two horses tearing towards each other, but also cut to flashbacks of previous duels and private moments of Dupro. The soundtrack becomes a concophony of noise over the rapidly edited shots. When the two finally clash, a hat bounces off with no clear indication who has won.
then see Fro nursing a bleeding wound with jubilant Dupereau riding off victoriously. In a film that's quite serious throughout, this is one of the more lighter moments, and for me marks a very clear divider in the film. Much like The Graduate, I think The Duelist is a film of two halves. The first far exceeds the second, and I'm not suggesting the second half of either film is rubbish, they just don't live up to the what came before. The film then jumps again to 1812, Dupro and Ferrer are now part of Napoleon's great retreat from Moscow. These parts of the film were filmed in Scotland, and again despite the small budget you can be forgiven for thinking that the film had a far higher one. It is good as time as any to mention the film's incredible costume design. This being Ridley Scott, all films were specially made at a cost of around £10,000 per uniform for Ferrer and Dupre. The uniforms are for anyone familiar with the period pretty much perfect, as are the weapons used in each of the fight scenes. There is a relationship between costume and performance which is perfect counter to the idea of Scott not being an actor's director. In order to believe you're a hussar, you have to look like one. The uniforms they wear restrict certain movements and force a certain type of performance more in keeping with the customs of the time. Military uniforms of the period were not about practicality, they were about show and bravado. Look at when Ferro and Dupreux are fighting, only when horseback are, are they in military attire, in all the other scenes they are in loose fighting shirts and baggy comfortable trousers. In the Russian scenes the actors wear whatever has come to hand. Scarves are tied around boots for extra insulation and the men have become vast hulking lumps of clothes desperately trying to keep warm. When Ferro sees Dupreux amongst the stragglers the next duel is on, trying to find a suitable spot and this time armed with pistols, the pair are interrupted by a Cossack, forcing the pair to use their remaining ammunition to kill him. Shunning Dupreux's offer of a drink, Ferrault coldly states the next fight will be with pistols. We then jump forward again to 1814. Now a retired general, Dupreux lives with his sister. Napoleon having been deposed and exiled, Ferrault is a penniless outcast, tipped for execution because of his loyalty to his former emperor. In terms of its narrative, the film is a point where to simply get on with the next duel would leave the film way too short, and unfortunately, this portion of the film between now and the final duel suffers from being fairly boring. A love story element is inserted into the narrative between Dupre and the spinster on the neighbouring estate. It actually adds nothing to Dupre's character, or indeed any relevance to the film's narrative. In light of Team America, it's quite hard to say without possible mockery that I actually like montages in films. Scott uses one to show the relationship between Dupre and the lover Blossom. It's the first time such advice is used in the film, and I would contest this is actually included because Scott is just padding the film before its climax. It is okay to take a breather, but I don't think this relationship is in any way necessary to the storyline. It's not to say the scenes themselves are bad, they are well written, and like the rest of the film, are interesting little vignettes into customs and etiquette of the time, but in relation to the main narrative, they really serve little purpose, and on a basis, seem at odds with Dupreux's decision to spare Ferro's life. Throughout the film, he is constantly trying to rid himself of Ferro, and when this looks like happening, he effectively lets him off the hook, despite embarking on a new love life. What is quite fascinating at this juncture of the film, is when we see that Ferro cannot remember, or is simply making up the real reasons for the duel's origin. Indeed, this is perhaps the main point of the film. Ferro's obsession is utterly meaningless, only unto him. I actually feel there is a tragedy about the film of wasted life. Lara's life ended up in prostitution, Dupro is unable to find peace whilst Ferro is alive, and Ferro, although a thoroughly unsympathetic protagonist, is consumed by a rage that has little meaning or value. 
The film's final duel is a climax of all the visual flourishes that have been building throughout the film. Scott spent hours simply sitting in the ruins the last year is 14 seeing how the light affected the location throughout the day. It's little wonder then that the final scene is one of the most beautiful ever put to film. Scott's love of smoke for atmosphere is ever present. You could spin the situation and say the smoke is in fact early morning mist drifting through, but anyone with a basic knowledge of the world will know mist is not that thick, and like in other scenes, Scott does not show us a bonfire or any logical reason for the smoke to be there. In keeping with the film, there is a ridiculous sense of formality before the duel begins. There is humour to be found in the film. I can't help but smirk when Thoreau's two helpers matter-of-factly discuss the proceedings, as it was just an everyday event. Today. Sir, I wonder, could you direct us to the residence of General Armand Dubert? What is it you want with him? I want a quiet word with him. Confidential, you understand? This place is quiet enough. Uh, you aren't the general, are you, sir, by any chance? Yes, sir, I am. Thought so. Met you once after Rat is born. Well, sir, all we need for the present are the names of your friends. What friends? We are the friends of General Perrault. We'll need to work pretty sharp. Police surveillance. They keep us bottled up at Vatan, down their eyes. Slip out, slip back. No one the wiser. Risky, of course, but honor before everything. Honor first. I could have you both carted back where you come from in irons. I swear to God, I could whisper. Only whisper, and you'd both be dead in a ditch before morning. This is royalist country. This is my home. We have proceeded on the assumption that you were a gentleman. Yes, damn you. Damn you, I am. Very well, then. We would like to know the names of your friends. I have no friends stupid enough to take part in such a farce. I suppose I could act for him. He could act for you. <laughs> Not what you'd call a steady fellow. Yes, you have to take a steady fellow to command a brigade. I don't suppose General Farrell would accept an apology. Out of the question. You could declare yourself unfit to be a soldier and resign your command. That might do. It wouldn't do. The general has received too deep an injury. I see. I will meet you tomorrow at sunrise, here. Sabres, whatever you choose. Pistols. Pistols? When I first watched the duel this some years ago, I was somewhat disappointed by the last duel, finding it a bit anticlimactic. I was expecting Dupont to win through some kind of trickery out foxing Thoreau in a clever way. Instead, Thoreau simply misses, and therein lies while the duel is given the circumstances quite short. The pair only have two pistols each and no extra ammunition. When Thoreau misses, he is bound by custom and given his strict adherence to the rules, has not bought any more ammunition. He is not the deceitful baddie he could have been, and indeed it is one of the elements of the film that does slightly frustrate me. I don't think we ever get to know Fro in any real detail, and in some respects I'm not entirely sure we need to. A modern comparison would be someone like the Joker from The Dark Knight, who functions more like a force of nature rather than a well-rounded character. 
In the duelist, however, I think we need to spend more time with Fro during the course of the film, perhaps seeing his fight to attain promotion in order to continue dueling Dupre. If the film could depart to show the romantic scenes with Dupre, I think there could have been more of Thoreau's military career. Come the climax, however, we can be left in no doubt that Thoreau's fate is indeed worse than death itself. As Dupre returns to the start point, we naturally assume that Thoreau is dead, only for a flashback to reveal he has indeed been spared with the instruction he is never again to bother Dupre. You have kept me at your beck and call for 15 years. I shall never again do what you demand of me. By every rule of single combat, from this moment, your life belongs to me. Is that not correct? Then I shall simply declare you dead. In all of your dealings with me, you will do me the courtesy to conduct yourself as a dead man. I have submitted to your notions of honor long enough. You will now submit to mine. The film's climax is, as I said before, one of the most beautiful ever put to film. In keeping with the good luck and fortune that blessed the film, Fro walks to the cliff edge to see the flooded valley below. This actually coincided with the exact moment the sun shone through the clouds. Fro, wearing a similarly iconic uniform to Napoleon, looks out at the scene below, contemplating his future and perhaps even his past. It is the perfect fusion of image and character, and indeed is the very definition of the cinematic. I've never seen the film projected, yet on a 50-inch plasma, the shot was utterly stunning. In the final analysis, The Duelist is an assured debut. It remains one of those films that seems to be discovered by new audiences year after year, and I wager there are many who would not even know it as a Ridley Scott film. We can see many of the traits that would become the signature of Scott's career, and indeed area that critics would argue are his flaws. The Duelist is in essence quite a high concept film, two men fighting against each other through the ages, with each duel using a different weapon. Technically, the duels are a joy to behold. They are violent as we could expect, and are far removed from what we normally see from Hollywood fare. I don't think the character is rounded as perhaps I would like, but I don't think this is Scott's dispensing of characterisation to focus on the film's technical elements. Moreover, I believe it is because of far more practical reasons. Let's not forget the film's budget was under a million pounds, and given its intentions, it is actually an incredibly bold film. The Duelist is epic in scope, and really if you didn't know, you wouldn't even consider it a low budget film. Scott's eye for framing makes you believe in the world outside of the camera frame. It's the simple things we don't even notice that do this, a horse and cart rushing past the camera, or soldiers milling around outside tents. Throughout the film you are aware of the technology and craft of camera work, the slow zooms and grateful tracks and dollies are clearly evidence of a director with supreme confidence in his ability to compose visuals that are both arresting and fully complement the story being told. Scott took over the camera operation after five days of filming, and to me it has been one of the indicators of a true auteur, as we know that every shot is exactly what the director either wanted or was the best he could get at the time. The visual of the films are at strongest point, which of course leads to the default Scott criticism that it's too good looking, or what critics really mean to say, it is in some ways superficial. I instead think the visuals elevate the film to a level whereby my own appreciation of it actually ignores some of the more padded moments of the screenplay. I might not be fully engaged with some of the scenes later on in the film, but from a cinephile point of view, the visuals are so arresting, I'm always compelled to continue viewing. 
We could almost call it an art house film made in, in the true independent spirit. The film was by no means a box office hit, but it did however mark Scott's entrance into the film world. He did pick up an award at Cannes for best debut feature, and seen as a career move, it's not hard to say The Duelist was a complete success. But what next? Well of course you leave Earl entirely, and head for the far reaches of space, for what is for me my most beloved and watched of all Ridley Scott films. Writer Dan O'Bannon's first work was John Carpenter's debut film, Dark Star. O'Bannon wanted to return to space, this time however a far more scary monster. Collaborating with friend David Suchet, the pair began working on a project called Star Beast about the crew of a spaceship terrorised by an alien monster. In the early 1970s, Star Wars was yet to reignite the sci-fi genre. O'Bannon and Suchet's script was decidedly B-movie in nature, and it's no surprise Air Force. At one stage, the film was going to be a Roger Corman piece, made on a typically low budget. However, Starbeast, which had now been renamed Alien by O'Bannon, was destined for far greater things, eventually finding its way to Brandywine Productions, where producers David Geiner, Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll would rewrite the script, adding the character of Kane, eventually played by Ian Holm. The script became a hybrid of O'Bannon and Shusett's original work, eventually arriving on the desk of Alan Ladd Jr. and 20th Century Fox. Much of the film's early design work had already begun, including the recruitment of Swiss artist H.R. Geiger, who incidentally on the first meeting with O'Bannon offered him opium, claiming it helped him protect him from nation. God knows what that must be like. After the release of Star Wars, Fox wanted another film set in space, of which Alien was the only one in development at the time. The project was greenlit with a budget of $4.5 million. Interestingly, all concerned were determined that in order for the film to work, it had to be made seriously with as little hokum as possible. Several big-name directors passed on the project, including producer Walter Hill, who claimed he simply did not have the patience for the special effects work the film would need. 
At the Cannes Film Festival, Ridley Scott had just won the award for his debut, The Duelists. Alien producer David Geiler had seen the film and, like most people who saw it, was highly impressed with the director's eye for composition and detail. Scott was offered the script to read, who after a month handed in extensive storyboards to Fox, who upon seeing Scott's vision of the film, increased the budget from $4.5 million to $8.5 million. Six months after The Duelist had been released, Scott was on course to direct his first major Hollywood film. Production began at the slightly run-down studios at Shepperton, where cast and crew would spend several brutal weeks on some of the biggest sets ever built, in searing heat and demanding conditions. Star Wars begins with its huge fanfare and spaceships shooting lasers at each other. The contemporary audience for Alien would have no doubt been more than familiar with the film, and I dare say in the absence of the booming home video market, itching for more, bearing in mind this was pre-Empire Strikes Back. Also think about science fiction films of the 50s and 60s with their theremin scores that sound so hokey, almost comical. We then came to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which set space to classical music, playful at times, yet also disconcerting and outright terrifying in others. Star Wars gave bombast and drama with identifiable themes and motifs. Now imagine our contemporary audience queuing to see Alien for the first time. They would know it was science fiction if they were used to fantastical aspects of the genre, spaceships, funny looking alien and rousing music numbers. When the lights dim and the curtain goes back, they are instead met with this. Listening to the Alien soundtrack, elements of the 50s and 60s science fiction films are there, except they are behind the main score, the tone is far lower, at a meditative pace. Interestingly, Scott claims one of the biggest influences in terms of horror films was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which pacing-wise is the complete opposite of Alien. The music is identifiable in the one hand, yet utterly unique on the other. Crucially, the music does not seem based on the conventions of any one genre. The message at this stage is perfectly clear. Alien is not the film you think it is going to be. This is space, but not space we have come to know. Look at the planets in the background as the camera passes around this corner of the universe. They are not bright or welcoming. And next comes something which only the real nerd in us all will tr ever truly enjoy. The gradual reveal of the alien text. Fragmented at first, the letters making up the title appear slowly, methodically, 
title font was actually the one chosen by the people who were preparing the posters for the film, of which Scott was also heavily involved with. The reveal is not a simple gimmick, or is it being done for pure aesthetic whimsy. It's a statement on the pacing of the film itself. Scott knows the real reason people are coming to see the film is for the alien, and he's trying to build suspense even more. Why would you then reveal the alien itself from the film's opening? Why give people the opportunity to simply walk out? It's the main attraction of the film. Only you as viewer are going to have to wait to see and you're at the mercy of Scott, who first wants you to settle into the world he has created. Let's not forget either the film's trailer did not reveal any details of the alien other than an egg with a horrific noise playing over the top. Audience expectation at this point would have been at fever pitch if the film's opening slows everything down, taking you back to reality, and what a reality we are shown. Out of the darkness comes the Nostroma, only it isn't sleek, it's not shiny, it's not pretty, it's more like an oil rig. The space shuttle looks like a plane because within Earth's atmosphere it needs to be aerodynamic, it needs wings and flaps to manipulate the air around it so it can turn, pitch and yaw. Outside of Earth's atmosphere, and it's utterly useless, its wings and flaps mean nothing in the zero gravity environment. It moves about through thrusters on its side, and sure it looks good, but if only used in space you might as well build a box with triangles and potatoes stuck to it, as both would have exactly the same aerodynamic qualities. We are informed that this thing before us is a refinery being towed through space by the Nostromo. As it glides over the camera, it is industrial without being fantastical. The best word to describe it is practical. This is what future technology looks like, not for aesthetic titillation, but instead for practical purpose of interstellar commerce. Before even setting foot on the ship, Scott has established his world brilliantly. Yes, this is science fiction, but it's science fiction that is unlike anything that has gone before it. Would we really at this stage be expecting laser guns and a crew made of half-human, half-three-eyed blue things that speaks in clicks? Of course not. Alien's about taking us to a reality in a galaxy far, far away. But why do this anyway? Scott knows it's going to be more scary the more we believe the reality of the world he is showing us. And upon entering the Nostromo, the notion becomes even clearer. The one criticism of Ridley Scott that seems almost default is the preference for location and style over character. As we'll see later in Scott's career, I don't think this observation is necessarily about merit, but I attribute its frequency to the misunderstanding of what he is trying to achieve as a filmmaker. Why does Scott go to such length to show you the world he creates? Is it because he wants the viewer to believe 100% that what they are seeing is real? Yes, but how can he achieve this if the actors don't believe in the world they are in? The, the opening shots of the Nostromo's interior are perhaps almost mundane in their functionality. We see lights flashing on consoles, trinkets on tables, files stacked on top of each other. The ship is cluttered, but above all it is lived in. It is believable, which as an actor does a great deal of the hard work for you. Having to react to the physicality of your environment makes the place tangible. This will come into his own later on in the film, but I think it is a complete contradiction to the argument that Scott is not an actor's director. To go to such lengths to aid them shows total understanding of the craft, and in some respects faith in the ability of the cast to perform. If we look at the cast, they are not an assortment of B-list cannon fodder. John Hurt, Harry Dean Stanton, Ton Skerritt, Yafit Koto were all classically trained theatre actors. We of course know that many of the crew in Alien will perish. Of course Ripley is established as the main protagonist, but for anyone watching the film new, seeing the cast of such calibre would make it really hard to work out who is going to die first. Prior to the crew waking up, the film is already hinting that there is something afoot. In the first instance, data begins to come through with a flurry of electronic noises. The camera then cuts to reflection of a helmet visor. Visually it looks as if the helmet is simply watching the screen, yet if you're familiar with the story, there's actually a context. A message to the ship's computer, Mother, informing it to wake the crew and begin the process of returning an alien. An analogy of the Astromo being a haunted house is often used when talking about alien. Haunted houses are often malicious places full of trapdoors, secret hideways to inside. This seemingly minor cutaway is extension of this. 
Mother knows where it's sending the crew towards. The ship, their home, is actively working against them. When we track to the crew in the sleeping pods, we are again reminded we are in the world of science fiction. Even in this scene, there seems to be science to the fiction. The crew don't spring up awake. Robots don't come in and serve them drinks. They look like they are tired, achy, and thoroughly pissed off. The technology is not perfect. It's not too slick. The ship still needs coolant and oxygen supplies. The world of Alien is dysfunctional, one built on known barriers and limitations. The crew of the Nostromo smoke, bicker, and look like truckers. They are not unique or different in appearance to anything that does not exist in the world we know and live in, and it is why when we see them around the table for the first time, we begin to forget the film's title and what it's actually about. Scott is making us forget what we are there to see, i.e. the Alien, thereby building the anticipation even more. The dialogue overlaps, making it hard to really hear what they are speaking about. It's a bit unnerving at first, as we as the audience haven't had any indicator who the main protagonist is, which is of course the point. The dialogue between the crew is also decidedly unscience fiction. There's no talk of space thrusters and laser beams in the early exchanges. Moreover, they are interested in pay and bonuses, which given what follows is totally trivial, yet serves again to root the story in reality. I am cold. Still with us, Brett? Hey. Yeah. Oh, I feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> oh yeah, right. Now, I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, his mother wants to talk to you. Uh, yeah, son. Yeah, lights for my eyes only. Okay, get dressed, huh? Parker? Can I finish my coffee? Mm. It's the only thing good on this ship. Looking back at the duelist, Scott created a world that extended beyond the camera through well-positioned actors and carts moving past it. In Alien, a similar effect is attained simply through the use of dialogue. I like to speculate when I watch films as the backstory of the worlds that they take place in. In the world of Alien, I've always felt that the technology that allowed such fast interstellar travel was probably a kind of accidental discovery, far from perfected, and still meaning the crews had to be put into artificial sleep to conserve supplies. It also explains why the ship looks so ugly and the crew, for want of a better word, normal. The rest of technology is waiting to catch up, commerce and world being the two biggest driving components in technological advance. Through the quality of the art direction, the Nostromo looks like a living, breathing craft. The only thing I can equate it to is when we see the ship's engine room in a film. We see pipes and steam and various dials and levers, not really knowing what each individual component does, but we recognise that the combined effort of all of them is to make the boat move and the electricity work. I get a similar feeling from the Nostromo. Every inch of it is filled with something that seems to have a purpose. Aesthetically, it's not designed to be pleasing on the eye. Rather more, a fully functioning craft, and of course the pipes and tubes are the perfect place to hide if your head is long and curved. Scott had in fact hired two design teams for the film. Michael Seymour and Roger Christian took care of all the human design spaces. The set of the stone was huge, allowing the cast to move through it without having to move from set to set. The non-human design, i.e. the alien and the vessel carrying the eggs, were designed by H.R. Geiger. Although he joined the crew before production began, Scott was adamant that he remained on board the project. Geiger had originally wanted to redesign the alien, however Scott insisted that he continue to use the design Necronomina, the early version of which is essentially the final design used in the film. Alien therefore has two very clear distinctive art direction styles to it, and you can easily see why Scott was so enthused with the project. 
This was science fiction being taken seriously with every inch of the camera's frame contributing to the, towards the film's overall aesthetic. When we do begin to see the crew interacting in the environment with such naturalistic dialogue, it also becomes increasingly hard to identify who the main protagonist is. We could naturally assume it's the captain, Dallas, or the most famous face in the film, John Hearn. The film's marketing gave absolutely nothing away in terms of the human element of the film. Of course, the film's lead was Sigourney Weaver, making her full film debut. You can see why Scott chose Weaver for the role, and an almost perfect cast, she particularly excels in the film. Weaver has the physical presence to stand up for herself as the ship's second in command. There was a genuine clash between her and Yafik Koto on set, who would regularly try to improvise even to the point where, come his death scene, he claimed on the day he was going to kill the alien instead. Scott had told Koto not to speak to Weaver and try to wind her up during the film's production. In relation to Weaver, Koto refused to accept his character would take orders from her. Weaver in turn had to rise up to both him and his character's attitude, which when you see the film explains the real tension between them and the eventual ascendance of Ripley to the role of leader of the group. Hey Ripley! Hey Ripley, I want to ask you a question. If they I find what they're looking for out there, does that mean we get full shares? Don't worry, Parker, yeah. You'll get whatever's coming to you. Look, I'm not going to do any more work. We get this straightened out. Brett, you're guaranteed by law to get a share. What? Why don't you just fuck off? What? What'd you say, Rip? If you have any trouble, I'll be on the bridge. Many of the cast complained that Scott did not show them enough attention on set, claiming they did not feel their characters had enough adequate motivation. Although I do question what motivation a character needs when it's being pursued by a 10-foot killing machine. The main detractor of Scott's style seems to be Tom Skerritt. Interestingly, in the quadrilogy special features, Harry Dean Stanton speaks of being given a vast dossier detailing his character's backstory, including such details as how many missions the character had been on and information had. Skerritt, however, claimed not to have been in the receipt of such information, which makes me wonder if perhaps his feelings for Scott are more negative than the other cast, or indeed it was a ploy by Scott to try and instill Dallas with a sense of separation. Perhaps Skerritt was slightly miffed he was cut so quickly from the final cut. Certainly would not be the first time an actor was less than thrilled to find himself killed off so early, given that the first cut of the film was over three and a half hours long. When the crew received the message from the alien craft, the subtlety of the filmmaking and indeed the screenplay become even more apparent. Up until the 40 minute mark, not a great deal has really happened. The motivation for landing has already been established. We know the crew are money motivated. To not land means to not receive payment. At this time, there would also be no reason to doubt that anything sinister was going on. The Nostromo's descent to the planet is another example of how less than perfect the technology of the film is. The ship is buffeted and bruised by the planet's atmosphere. There is an element of danger to the mission that is recognisable with known physics as opposed to the convenient and clean beaming from Star Trek. After the crew have landed on the planet, we have what I consider to be the creepiest moment of the entire film. Given the film as one of the most iconic horror moments in all of cinema, it may come as a surprise to know that the moment I am talking about is in fact the moment when Ash jogs on the spot. Why is this so weird and odd? Well, why does he do it? Ash, as we later found out, is a robot who has been planted by the company to ensure the mission is a success. It is never established as to what level of artificial intelligence he has, therefore I find the moment utterly terrifying. On the one hand, it might be a simple script oversight or narrative misdirection to make Ash look like a normal person. For me, this strange moment is part of the long-term appeal. It only freaks out once you've seen the film and know what Ash is. It perfectly reflects the idea that nothing in the film is as it seems. They are not there by chance, all of what occurs happens as part of a grand plan. Ash, when he jogs on the spot, is in my mind doing so because he is programmed to act agitated and nervous. 
It is part of a methodical process by which the crew have been duped into being the unwitting pawns in a corporate plan to bring an alien home. Seeing Alien again, you get a real impression of the claustrophobia of the film. There are many instances where during the course of the scene a conversation will be going on whereby the camera keeps cutting back to someone on the peripheral of the main character speaking. We see from the facial expressions or nervous action of the character that the situation is causing an immense amount of stress within the crew. In particular one scene when the Nostromo has landed on the planet, we see Lambert smoking a cigarette staring into a console. She is not part of the main conversation, yet through her facial expression and demeanour we can tell that character is uneasy with the situation. It's the perfect use of lack of dialogue to say so much. Sometimes characters like Lambert in these types of films are set up to be as annoying as possible, yet in Alien it's hard not to empathise with her and honestly you ask yourself how would you react given the situation. As the crew begin to move toward the Nostromo, you could ask yourself what has really happened. We are being teased with more and more with imagery that builds in scale. The film begins intimately with the corridors of the Nostromo before we get to the planet and are greeted with a truly epic image of the crashed alien vessel. Geiger would win an Oscar for his work and quite frankly it's not hard to see why. The alien vessel is so huge and the effects so good it is truly awe inspiring even by today's standards of effect. I always prefer physical effects over CGI, especially matte and forced perspective work. As Dallas Kane and Lambert approach the ship dwarfed by its scale, we could easily assume that the film is going to take place in it, which again plays into the idea of narrative misdirection and audience expectation. The so-called space jockey scene is for science fiction fans one of the most iconic moments in cinema. Incidentally, the scene almost did not happen. Scott and the writers had to fight to have the set built. Its cost was £500,000, and the studios were not willing to pay for it, given it was only going to be used once. The set was built anyway, away from the main soundstage, and was hand-decorated by Geiger himself, who also used real bones for the ship's interior, causing the set to stink of rotting marrow. As in The Duelist, Scott uses zooms in and out in Alien, and this is used to great effect in the space jockey scene, when we zoom in on the fossilised hole where the alien has burst out of the chest. The moment works so well because we are given a taste of what is to come and yet as well as a tantalising glimpse of what also happened. The hold where the aliens are kept is another of those jaw dropping moments that for effects enthusiasts are an utter delight. You could argue how we could see so much in the apparent darkness, but who really cares anyway when the image is so incredible? This is completely enclosed and it's full of leathery objects like eggs or something. The laser light hovering above the effects was a prop borrowed from the Who, who were rehearsing next door where, and with the addition of a sound effect that accompanies John Hurt's hand when he passes through it, has the appearance of a far more sophisticated effect. There's a messed up sense of physics to the scene as well, if you notice drips go upwards from the eggs, and of course we have to go through the pain of watching John Hurt attacked in the face. It's what I love about the alien's life cycle, these eggs are passive like a Venus flytrap, they wait for you to come to them. The cut from the facehugger jumping from the egg juxtaposed with the wide shot of the alien craft demonstrates Scott's perfect mastery of the craft of filmmaking. In the first instance, I doubt very much we could have seen the facehugger attach itself anyway without a rather poor looking effect. When it jumps from the egg, editor Terry Rawlings uses a series of small cuts showing it shooting up towards the face. The effect is far more creepy because we don't actually see what it is. Scott knows about building suspense, so we are again made to wait. The cut to the alien craft suddenly makes us feel the people inside are trapped. 
we know the ship was issued a warning to stay away, selling the dread that permeates the film up until this point has a tangibility to it. We're also given a valuable moment to stop and reflect, what now for the crew? Alien was shot in a scope frame by cinematographer Derek Vanlet. Scott throughout his career has used different aspect ratios, and this was his first scope feature. I doubt very much he would have used it during his commercial years, and sometimes directors using the format for the first time often frame badly, or seem to be a bit lost of what to do with all the extra space. You could level no such complaints with Ridley Scott's direction in the film. Again, he was operating the camera himself, and the framing throughout is utterly impeccable. The film's art direction means there's always something to notice within the scene, and one of the reasons why the film holds up on repeat viewings. During the scene when Ash tries to kill Ripley, look at the walls where she is thrown down. You can see new pictures on the wall, no doubt posted by Parkour or Brett, or when Lambert is landing the Stromo, look at the side of the image you can see navigation notes she's made. I particularly like the use of space. One of my favourite scope shots is when directors place an actor to the far left of the screen, leaving empty space to the right. For some reason it never gets boring for me, especially when this scene is lit as well as they are an alien. Like the duelist, Scott's use of smoke in the film is quite frequent, in particular when used in conjunction with bright light, such as when Ripley, Brett and Parker are looking for the alien. The film also has an industrial look to it, I would even go as far as to say as the image looks dirty. The Nostromo looks like the type of place that if you put your hand down, you would get it wet with grease and grime. Some directors work look the same from film to film, like Michael Bay for example. Scott however injects a sense of individuality into each of his film's visual styles. When compared to The Duelist, Alien is far from the oil painting that film resembled, yet much like the artwork of Giga, is visually stunning in a far more disturbing way. Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien is one of his most celebrated, seemingly by everyone bar him. Much of the score in the film is not the one he wanted to use. The opening cue was originally far less quirky. I don't need to hear what he originally planned, and quite frankly I'm with Ridley Scott on this one, as the opening of Alien is one of my favourite cues of all time. From the crew waking up from hypersleep to the ship's ascent to the planet, and the Ripley's eventual battle with the alien, it is close to perfect as any director could ever want. A good score enhances our emotions to what is happening on screen. In Alien we feel the wonder, the mystery, and the fear all the more through the score, yet it never dominates or overpowers the image. The film's kills are all utterly memorable, and of course in the case of John Hurt, one of the all-time greats. Normally, kills in horror films build up in scale. Alien subverts this by starting with the biggest one first, ironically when the alien is at its most smallest. We know something might be afoot with Kane, given he has had something attached to his face for most of the film, yet we've probably forgotten the zoom in on the space jockey's wound, therefore I have no idea what is going to follow. We waste little time in getting to Kane's death. No matter how many times you watch the film, nothing prepares you for the outright shock of the alien bursting through his chest. You need only look at the reaction of the cast and then this was as big a shock to them as it is to us. It is also very much in keeping with the film. Alien takes itself very seriously. This is not meant to be one of those moments where we turn to each other and laugh along with the action and nod our approval. What's even better is we are given an indication that the crew might be able to fight back against the alien. It is only, after all, a few inches tall. The first thing that I'm going to do when I get back is to get some decent food. I can dig it, man. I'm telling you, I haven't eaten first room this way. Then I'm tasting better, you know what I'm saying? The other one over there. You pound down the stuff like this. Uh huh. I'd rather be eating something else, but. Right now, I'm taking food. Uh, you, know, you just know you know what it's made of. <laughs> no, Dad. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. <laughs> What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, baby. 
up is Brett. For anyone who wonders where the water is coming from in this death scene, the answer is supposed to be condensation from the heating unit, but who really cares when coupled with clunking chains, it looks and sounds so utterly creepy. I love the handheld camera work in the scene also. There was once this time when such a stylistic choice was novel and actually conveyed a sense of urgency to a scene. In this instance, we can always interpret it as a POV shot. The trains and dripping water to Brett were probably normal, yet because we don't know anything about the ship, it seems slightly odd, which in turn makes the scenes seen through his eyes deeply unnerving. Scott was a big fan of the less is more theory of filmmaking. The glimpses we get of the aliens soon make us realise that this thing is massive. Our initial thoughts they could wing quickly evaporate. What is so interesting about the alien and the glimpses we do get is that we kind of recognise it on a basic level. It has a mouth, arms and a head, but has yet some suitably nasty additions. Shitloads of teeth coupled with another mouth that comes out of its main one, and worst of all, it doesn't even have any eyes whatsoever. It is, to be very obvious, alien although check out the insect world and you soon find those far worse on our very own planet. Naturally, the crew have to now think of a way of combating an alien who is far from a manageable 6 inches in height. Throughout the film, Dallas is led with a laid back attitude. Thinking of Star Wars, it would have been easy to hand Solo the character, instead his decision to go into the air ducts feels far more true to his character. Could he really ask anyone else to go in there? Of course not, and he knows it. He's brave without the bravado, yet fodder nonetheless. When Dallas decides to go into the air duct, I love the shot of the closing iris that seals him in. The noise of the metal grinding as it shutters is creepy and forbidding. It's another fantastic practical effect that gives the film its industrial reality. The film sets up some technology to aid the suspense. Using Ash's basic motion tracker, the film heads into claustrophobia overdrive. There is a total sense of hopelessness to what Dallas is attempting. He uses the flamethrower to fire into the darkness, but we know that the alien is in there with him. I heard on Joe Barlow's excellent Cinema Slave podcast that he now finds it hard to see Alien without being aware that the alien is just a man in a suit and the moment that he tries to grab Dallas looks like someone doing jazz hands. I respectfully have to disagree with Joe in this case. I don't think we see enough of the alien to ever really gauge that it's just a man in a suit and in the case of Dallas we know through the deleted scenes and alternative cut that it does not actually kill him anyway. 
Being a horror fan, this is my favourite scare moment. I am massively claustrophobic, and other than Alien, the film that scared me most is The Descent, which, like Alien, resides somewhere in my worst nightmare. There may have been clues that Ash was not quite the ticket early on, and his utter disregard for our orders clearly shows he's being something of a troublemaker. Nothing, however, can prepare us for the truth. In an early scene, and something I only noticed on watching the film for preparing for this show, we see Ash sipping what we assume is milk. When Ripley has discovered from Mother that they have essentially been set up, Ash confronts Ripley when white fluid appears to sweat from his head. Prior to Alien, screen robots were decidedly mechanical in appearance. Ash, however, feels slightly more ahead of its time, and his malfunction is truly disturbing. Ripley Scott stated that you could interpret Ash's actions as being an attempt at raping Ripley, as if he was sexually frustrated. It's an eerie concept that fits well with my own discomfort when we see him jog on the spot, as if he has exceeded his programming and has developed disturbing new tendencies. Ash's destruction and the subsequent fight for survival where Lambert and Parker are killed see Scott's completely change the pacing and tone of the film. In a film that was so meditative and slow paced to begin with, it suddenly becomes an adrenaline rush, whereby all the elements of the film are ratched up. The camera work becomes even more handheld, with whip pams and jerks. The music becomes faster and more urgent. The ship fills with steam and lights flash and blink. A musical analogy works well looking at the scene, as it is filled with highs and lows, building to a false crescendo when we believe Ripley has escaped the beast. We all know the alien is still on board. I actually think the film does the right thing by not extenuating the scene, and more than it needs to be. In a film that is so well edited and so devoid of any cinematic fat, is the perfect resolution to a film that in reality is far from certain, yet satisfying nonetheless. Seeing Alien today, the film's effects have barely aged at all. Perhaps the monitors seem a bit big in the age of flat screen technology, but nonetheless the film is incredible. Part of the reason for that comes in how the effects were made, and the emphasis being on the made. The effects team built the spaceships from wood plastic model kits and just about anything they could find. Ridley Scott himself lit and shot most of the effects himself, which I don't think is any way ego-driven, more so a director who has a complete and total vision of the film he is making. I don't think there's a single shot in Alien that stands out as being hokey or for want of a better word, fake, but the reason for why the effects work so well is because they complement the film rather than define it. Alien is first and foremost a story about people and an extraordinary situation. When we cut to an exterior shot of the ship, or Alien Planet, we are invariably thinking about the film and the characters and what is happening. We are almost impressed as an afterthought by the size of the ship before we are again thrust back into the film's story. Sadly, I don't think films will be made like Alien for much longer. Yes, the Star Wars prequels are incredible effects bonanzas, but do any of the scenes in them compare with the image of Dallas, Lambert and Kane standing in front of the Alien craft? I don't think so, and it's why Alien will be treasured by film historians for many years to come. Before I conclude, I want to talk a little more about one theory often attributed to the film, and that is that it is a metaphor for rape. It's a theory that in many respects I do agree with, although I'm always loath to dwell on textual analysis of films. I will offer my explanation as to why I feel this theory has credence, and why in some respects I feel it explains in some way why, I make, why the film makes me feel so uncomfortable. First we have to look at the biology of the alien species and its life cycle. The facehugger actively seeks hosts and attaches themselves to the face. As we see in the film and in Aliens, this process is forced and brutal. They attach themselves to the face before sticking a tube down the throat. For anyone familiar with Geiger's work, there is a reoccurring theme of explicit sexual imagery. In many instances, these images hint if not specifically show sex as a brutal, painful process between an aggressive, sexually dominant being and a passive, physically inferior other. Sex in his work is like a mechanical process, its function is purely reproductive. In designing Alien and affecting its biology, I cannot believe that this type of mindset would not have influenced him greatly when designing the alien species. The interesting aspect of Alien is we see Geiger's work interacting with the identifiable, i.e. humans. 
In this clash of worlds, you have two species whose cultural and physical reproductive cycles differ greatly. When the Faisuk attaches itself to Cain, there can be no argument that he is being impregnated. The fact he is male is neither here nor there for the alien, yet to us it is the inverse of the natural role of the male. The fact he is forced therefore makes this attack a rape. Male rape is seldom heard of for a variety of reasons, at least not because of the perceived shame victims feel and the stigma they believe such knowledge will cause them. Being taboo, it of course becomes all the more horrific in thought. The idea of being unable to prevent it is even more disturbing, as we could ask ourselves how would we let it happen in the first place? Surely we would be able to stop it? And what about the effects? We could be left injured, or even worse, diseased. In Alien, Cain is unable to prevent it anyway. As discussed before, he has a tube forced down his throat. The phallic nature of this is obvious, and what's more, it is laying a life form within him. After the facehugger has died and fallen off Cain's face, of course the rest is history. The result of this communion bursts from his chest in what is of course a birth, albeit a fatal one. It's a kind of perverse interpretation of nature that occurs time and time again in Geiger's work, yet in the context of its symbolism is not even subtle. Cain has been violated and mothered the alien. I don't think this natural inverse and the way in which it has occurred is the immediate thought of people who see the film. Come the end credits, much like a good roller coaster ride, you are stopping to reflect on the thrill of what you've just seen. Moreover, I believe, and why I think the film is so much more than just a mere horror film, when you talk about what happened to Kane and think about it in any detail, you begin to make the connection between it and the life cycle we know amongst mammals on the planet. For me, it's here where the rape connotations begin to take precedent. I cannot see the film now without making that connection. The visceral brutality of what happens to Kane prior to the chest bursting scene suddenly had a context and a reality that is not easy to dismiss as being fantastical due to the presence of an alien being. This is the male nightmare realised. Unable to defend himself, Cain is violated brutally and left for all intents and purposes diseased. You can subtract the alien for any metaphor you want, be it AIDS or some other sexually transmitted virus, but the harsh reality means he was unable to do anything about it. Alien was released to universal critical and audience praise. Science fiction and horror had in many respects been validated as a legitimate genre. Although a genre piece, Alien was made as a prestige film and the hands of Ridley Scott was elevated to a standard never seen before. Atmosphere permeates every frame of the film, which when coupled with the incredible art direction, created a truly unique cinematic achievement. In a film as big as Alien, it's the smaller moments that stand out. Ash jogging on the spot, the egg opening in front of Kane, or a beeping dot on a motion tracker. I don't know how many times I've watched Alien, and it never tires. It is for me a timeless classic that will continue to amaze for many years to come. As a calling card, Ridley Scott had arrived in Hollywood. It was clear for all to see that Alien was the work of a director who could make material thought B-movie and turn old. Hollywood likes nothing more than a director who is off the back of a major hit, and Scott was one of the most sought-after talents in the industry. Scott's next scheduled project was Dune. Producer Dino De Laurentiis had hired Scott to become on board after the film had been stuck in development hell for a number of years. Then, tragically, Scott's older brother Frank died of cancer. Reassessing the Dune project, Scott realised he probably wasn't in the right place to make the film and decided to drop out of the project. Meanwhile, a young writer eager to make a name for himself called Hampton Fancher had acquired the rights to a Philip K. Dick novel called Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep? Set in a future San Francisco about a slightly overweight policeman trying to raise enough money to buy an artificial animal. Blade Runner was about to be born.
I need your deck. This is a bad one. The worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. Three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzzlove. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? I'm in a bar here now, down in the fourth sector. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? That's not my kind of place. Time to die. If I didn't care more than words can say, if I didn't care, would I feel this way? Excuse me, Miss Salome, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> you for real. He's a damn one-man slaughterhouse. I'm going home. For anyone who has driven across the Queen Elizabeth Bridge over the Thames in Thurrock, there comes a point when you reach the middle and you can see London in the distance, oil refineries in the foreground. At night and in the pouring rain, you are transported to Los Angeles 2019, along with the stark realisation that Blade Runner gets more real every passing year. The term visionary seldom has any real substance to it, especially when used in film where the word is a marketing term. But Blade Runner is a film that perhaps defines the word within a cinematic context. The production of Blade Runner has become the stuff of legend, some true and some not. It's a film that fans of Ridley Scott will point towards as perhaps being the director's greatest achievement. Paradoxically, critics of Scott will argue it is everything that makes him so overrated, by claiming it's nothing more than an experiment in aesthetics over character. Far from being a hit on its initial release, the film has become one of the most beloved of all time. It's not a rare phenomenon, sometimes films just don't find their audiences first time around, 
and in the context of Scott's career, this could have easily been his Michael Cimino moment, seeing him fade into exile for the next 25 years. With time, the film has more than vindicated the vision Scott had for it, and it was vision exactly why he was brought onto the picture. Producer Michael Dealey wanted a director who could create a world that was unlike anything audiences had seen before. The original incarnation of the film was far from the vast cityscapes we have known to come and love. Dangerous Days, as the screenplay was originally called, was largely set in apartment buildings and was extremely dialogue heavy. Despite some setbacks with funding, Dealey approached Scott to direct, who as with Alien immediately began designing a new vision of the film. Futurist Sid Mead was enlisted to create a vision of the future that would not only be aesthetic but also sociological and environmental. As with Alien, very quickly the budget on the film soon began to head northwards. Dealey negotiated deals with several financiers, which would eventually lead to a budget of around $25 million. Production started in March 1981, for four tortuous months. Scott, working with an American crew for the first time, and held up deeply influenced by the death of his brother, clashes with the crew were commonplace. Unable to operate the camera himself, and perhaps slightly too obsessed with the world he was creating, Blade Runner was not a harmonious set to say the least, but from such madness, greatness often blossoms. The final product is there to see, and for me Blade Runner has always been a rare beast, in that each time I watch it, I manage to walk away with something new each time. The film begins with scrolling text telling us that genetically modified beings known as replicants are banned from Earth, punishable by death at the hands of the titular Blade Runners. What follows in the next few seconds is quite frankly a vision of a nightmare never quite seen before. Through the use of Van Gelis and possibly one of the most incredible effects ever created, the city of Los Angeles is laid out before us. Yet this is not the sunny Los Angeles we know, aptly named a Hades set by the crew, is a glimpse into the future that cannot be forgotten. The film is not just a visual delight, it also asks fundamental questions about the nature of humanity. Above all, what does it mean to be human? As I will explore later in greater detail, I don't think necessarily the film works on a character level, but on an intellectual level, there is much to be explored and enjoyed in the film. Its story is deceptively simple. A retired cop, a Blade Runner, must track down and kill replicants. In the lead role is of course Harrison Ford. Casting Harrison Ford in the early 1980s meant two things, Han Solo and Indiana Jones, two of the most iconic Hollywood characters, both heroically brave, funny and most importantly box office gold. Contrary to popular belief, Ford was more than enthusiastic about the project. Originally most of the detective work done by Deckard was simply explained in a voiceover. On Ford's advice, these were turned into scenes which I don't necessarily think was ego, moreover an understanding that Deckard was supposed to be a police officer and needed to do police work. Casting against type often emphasises a particular character's traits. Frank in Once Upon a Time in the West was evil, played by Henry Fonda and saying the character is twice as horrible as he is on paper. Audiences bring expectation, and indeed certain hopes, that an actor will deliver a certain type of performance. Tom Hanks plays a similar type of character from film to film. We know what to expect and indeed don't really mind that his range of characters isn't particularly broad. Audiences in the 1980s would have wanted Ford to be the roguish action hero. Certainly the film's marketing would suggest Blade Runner was that type of film, yet Ford's Deckard, far from being evil, is conflicted, cold and deeply flawed human being. The noir detective is normally a solitary type, world-rearing and initially reluctant to do the job in hand. Deckard's role in the film is to kill, yet the kills themselves, of which there are only two that can be attributed to him, are not heroic, triumphant or in any way for a greater good. The killing of Zora is the most horrific. Think back to Han Solo dispatching Greedo in Star Wars. It's funny and above all very cool. In the bizarre scene that proceeds to chase through the streets, Deckard confirmed that Zora is a replicant by matching the scale with her costume. He is not there to arrest her, he is there to kill her. The moment he has confirmed she is a target, she is doomed. But Zora is more than a match for him. Bar the intervention of another performer, she would easily kill Deckard. What type of a hero is this? He knowingly partakes in the killing of women, yet cannot even defend himself against them. 
the Ford persona is completely subverted, and what follows largely belies the darker underbelly that defines the film. Zora is running for her life from Deckard, what we could expect would be for Deckard to somehow get in front of her, have her run around a corner for him to be there, but instead he simply shoots her in the back. The first shot sends her down before Scott changes to slow motion, and Vangela's more full score takes over. When cinema is at its best, images are all the narration we need. As Zora stumbles through shut windows, desperately trying to save herself, the tragedy of the moment becomes almost overwhelming. From one perspective, and indeed the view shared by the likes of Bryant, replicants are not even human beings, just skin jobs as he calls them. Yet as we see, they are the most human characters in the film, their desire to live is based on the relationships they have between each other. Deckard's shooter in the back is brutal in the extreme, Blade Runner is actually a very violent film and has an extra element of nasty to it. We feel sorry for Zora, and crucially not pleasure for Deckard. When Zora lies on the floor, her image becomes almost mosaic in the shattered glass. Kills in films are seldom given a visual epitaph, and in fact we're being made aware that the replicants are where the film's moral heart lies. In this respect, Blade Runner is an odd beast. Far from being a vehicle, more of an umbrella for deeper levels of intellectual thought. Perhaps this is a fact of the film's detriment, but as we know, Blade Runner was never about box office anyway. Deckard's second kill, Pris, is the first. Pris is the one replicant who we come to like the most in the film. She's playful, always deadly, no doubt, but hugely sympathetic. Deckard's shooting her is in the context of the scene justified. She's going to kill him after all, therefore making it slightly more palatable than the gunning down of Zora. But nevertheless, the disturbing way she thrashes about screaming before he puts another bullet in her is dark even for a noir cop. I've read some arguments to suggest Deckard is a misogynist which I agree with. Moreover, Deckard is the product of the world where he lives. Anonymous, expendable and broken, he has absolutely nothing which to guide him. 
One aspect where I believe the film fails is the relationship between Deckard and Rachel. Ford and Sean Young did not gel on the set and the chemistry between them on screen is virtually zero, but even in the absence of chemistry, you have to earn the romance. The two go from first meeting to love in what seems to be a matter of days, yet I would challenge anyone to tell me where the emotion between the two is. When Batty saves Deckard, he is not doing so because he sees the redemptive nature in his soul, he is doing it for himself. Batty wants to share his final moments with someone else that is more than just the sum of his supposed parts. The moment Deckard decides to take Rachel with him at the end really should have more weight to it, but the simple fact is I don't feel the relationship has anywhere near the impact it should. Deckard's characters don't feel complete from when we first meet him, and in that respect I actually think Blade Runner fails to ever truly allow us to engage with Deckard. I don't think it has anything to do with Ford's performance, the very fact that I find it so easy to disassociate him with previous roles is a testament to this, but in the final analysis, Deckard is perhaps too archetypal to ever be something in his own right. Deckard is not the only character who I feel was let down by the screenplay. It cannot be denied that the tears in the rain speech at the end of the film is one of the cinema's greatest moments. The humanity and wonder contained in Roy's final moments are however not endorsed by his previous action, and I'm of course talking about the killing of Sebastian. Scenes between Pris, Roy and Sebastian bridge the divide between human and replicant. All are suffering from both natural and genetic defects that reduce their lives. Roy and Pris find common ground with Sebastian and the dynamics of the relationship between the two which suggests that although Roy is using him to get the genuine sense of friendship between them, when the trio go to see Tyrell, Batty in a fit of rage kills him and then off screen kills Sebastian. For me this has never made sense. Batty has an appreciation of life that clearly would indicate how he cherishes it, therefore killing Sebastian seems to contradict this. Why would he then execute an innocent civilian? Sebastian has nothing, nothing wrong other than work for Tyrell. This could be spun as being Batty hating all members of the corporation, but for me it simply doesn't ring true. By killing Sebastian, Batty is let down by the screenplay that wants us to empathise so much of him at the end. Sebastian is not a bad person, indeed he is more of a vulnerable child than a cold-hearted exploiter of replicant suffering. I don't think Batty has been written as a cold-hearted psychopath, yet this could be an interpretation of his actions post the killing of Sebastian. Perhaps the reason why the screenplay had such mixed messages comes from the fact that Hampton Fancher was actually replaced by David Peoples, who changed much of the tone of Fancher's screenplay. Often different writers' sensibilities are at odds with each other, and perhaps this is the reason why Batty's actions seem so contradictory, given his apparent humanity. People did inject more violence into the film, and I wonder if the killing of Sebastian was added more for the sake of making the film more viscerally violent. Ask anyone about Saving Private Ryan, and they talk about the beach landing scene, not how they love the characters or engaging storyline. Ask people out Blade Runner, and Deckard will be quite low down the list of what immediately appeals to them. My view and opinion on this does not detract from how incredible I think the film is, because to me it exists in the same kind of realm as art house cinema does. The world of Blade Runner is cerebral and intellectual as anything Goddard or Ozu ever made, and in the same way 2001 A Space Odyssey seems so utterly unique as a studio film, Blade Runner is as much an oddity as Kubrick's masterpiece. The film essentially asks the question, what does it mean to be human? Replicants are embedded with memories, they are completely sentient beings that have been created to undertake the jobs and missions that humans do not want to do. In the first instance, we could ask ourselves what type of species does this to another that feels pain and forms meaningful relationships. Playing God has been a fascination of man because fundamentally the thought of not being a master of our own destiny terrifies us. Some people turn to God, some let their understanding of fate decide, and some try to fill the role between both God and fate. In Blade Runner, man has denied choice to a creation. Tyrell is both god and fate to the replicants, and the rest of society has knowingly endorsed this by purchasing his products to fill a variety of roles deemed not suitable for other human beings. Batty, Pris, Leon and Zora have all been created to perform tasks that no human would assign to another one. Yet, 
as the motto goes, they are more human than human. The paradox between this statement and the role of replicants is clear. If human, why treat them so inhumanely? Without hesitation, Deckard will shoot female replicants in the back while the rest of the world simply gets on with its evening entertainment. Blade Runner, therefore, becomes an exploration of what happens when a society forgets its humanity. I can only equate it to when we began seeing bomb footage that has been so prominent in every conflict since the first Gulf War. In an age of 24-hour news, we can see buildings and vehicles being blown up with our breakfast, lunch and dinner. What seldom happens is we think about the people who are being killed as a result of what we are seeing. Have we as a society lost part of our humanity, or at the very least the ability to be shocked by horrific acts? In Blade Runner, society has indifference to the world around it. Replicants are banned from Earth under punishment of death, yet risk it nonetheless in order to try and prolong their lives. The very fact that they are willing to do so shows an appreciation of life that no one else in the film does. In turn, this leads to the great debate surrounding the film. Is Deckard a replicant? By the end of the film, and through Batty's speech, he is clearly going to leave the world behind and run off with Rachel. Is it being a replicant that has allowed him to do this? Or has it been the rediscovering of humanity through Batty? There is of course one clue at the end of the film, where Gaff leaves a paper mache unicorn in Deckard's apartment. This of course is in a reference to a scene in which Deckard thinks about one earlier on in the film. Also, like the other replicants, he is now a collector of photos, his apartment is strewn with them everywhere. We could easily assume that like Rachel, these have been given him to help perpetuate the belief. For me, however, Deckard being a replicant is pointless, and there is much evidence to suggest he is human, albeit a very emotionally stunted one. In the original novel, Deckard was not a replicant, yet questioned what made him human. This works far better in the film. If Deckard is a killer, after Rachel shoots Leon, he knows exactly the emotional response she is going through. Why, if he was a replicant, would they leave this in him? Surely it would be far more efficient if he was not burdened by normal human emotion. This all becomes the biggest sticking point as to why I cannot accept the fact he is a replicant. Why does Deckard not have any of the replicant's strength? Batty absolutely kicks him senseless. Why would you make a hunter that was inferior to its prey? Ridley Scott states in an interview that in his mind Deckard is a replicant, however I feel this is more of a knee-jerk than a legitimate statement. I commented before that I don't think the Decartel has the emotional payoff the film needs, but the film is in my mind a story of man rediscovering his humanity and turning his back on the world around him that has desensitised him so much. Hampton Fancher stated he wanted it to be more ambiguous, which serves the story far better. Gaff leaving the unicorn in the apartment could indicate that he knows about Deckard thinking about the unicorn. However, the unicorn sequence was actually part of the prep work being done on Legend. In my mind, it looks impressive and it suggests, but for me it is post-production tinkering and much like the dissolve to the owl when Deckard interrogates Rachel, is more of an interesting transition than key narrative moment. Although this was the first time in his career he was not operating the camera himself, Scott formed a great relationship with cinematographer Jordan Cronworth, whose work though is made all the more incredible given he was suffering from Parkinson's disease. Visually, Blade Runner represents a further step in the evolution of Scott's visual style. In every scene we can see smoke, even with characters adding even more as most of them are constantly puffing away throughout the film. In Blade Runner, Scott uses backlight far more to shine through the atmosphere, in particular through windows using blinds to add streaks to the image. My particular favourite moment in the film comes when the lift moves up through Sebastian's apartment block. Beams of light shine from the lift into the Bradbury complex. It is so simple yet so effective in creating a genuinely fully realised future environment and for a building used so many times before in films and television, visually reinvents such iconic architecture. You could dismiss shots like this as mere window dressing, but to do so would be akin to asking why artists such as Monet ever bothered to put brush to canvas. In Deckard's apartment, the light shines through the blinds into the apartment that's thick with atmosphere. The apartment itself is claustrophobic, with the addition of smoke and light streaking in, 
There's a kind of beauty to the drabness that gives it a visual identity that lesser filmmakers would have perhaps not bothered with in the first place. In the exterior scenes, the smoke forms part of the pollution that is clearly rampant in this future world. Seeing the making of on the Blu-ray, the crew members constantly bellow smoke into the streets, but combine that effect with a multitude of different neon lights in the streets, and you have an image that is at times so dense it is almost overwhelming. The individual merges into one huddled mass. If you pause the film, you can see the different cultures and individual hairdos, but when played normally, the metropolis is an organism that swallows up the masses, creating an environment where the likes of Deckard become so detached from the world around them. In almost every scene, there is some kind of practical effect created through light manipulation. In particular, in Tyrell's Pyramid, there is a shimmering across the characters and set when Deckard first goes there. Perhaps it's moments like this that would lead Roger Ebert to dismiss the film on its original run, claiming Scott was only interested in visuals over character. And indeed, if you are not invested heavily in the film, you could easily become distracted by the visual ticks. The shooting at night was more practical, as quite simply the sets would not hold up to daylight filming. But the rain was another masterstroke of simplicity. On the one hand, it is part of the dystopia. The environment is screwed and given the factories at the beginning, it is most probably acid rain also. The rain combined with the smoke layers the image with a thick, heavy tone, perfectly in sync with the murky undertones contained within it. The rain is also one of the most personal touches Scott brings to the film. Raised in the north of England, rain is a fairly regular event. I live in the north near Salford Keys in Manchester, and sometime when the skies are dark and the rain is pouring, it's hard not to think about Blade Runner, and in some ways Manchester's greatest artist, Lowry, would add rain to much of his work when capturing the mills and factories of the past. Scott too draws similar inspiration for one of nature's most irritating pastimes. For a director we often associate with flashy visuals, the length of the shots in the film are often longer than we would expect. Alien's pace was slow leading up to the kinetic finale, and Blade Runner follows a similar structure. Many of the shots remain static during the scene, because like all good detective films, we are encouraged to try and solve the crime along with Deckard. Although, like all noir films, the crime is really secondary to the various subplots. Perhaps the pacing of the film owes much to the fact that the film was edited by regular Terry Rawlings, who Scott would work with again on Legend. The zooms that Scott liked so much in the duelist in Alien were not as prominent, and the fact I can't recall one suggests Scott was not as fond of the technique in favour of keeping the audience's attention through static framing. This is even explored further when Deckard examines Zora's picture. He's essentially moving through a static image to get the information he requires. Although there is movement within the frame, we are still looking at static images nonetheless. When recurring visual motif arise, we are constantly drawn to them throughout the film, especially because of the red glow we see. Of course it's open to many interpretations, the most obvious being the old classic irons of the windows to the soul, which given the replicants are in fact manufactured, relates back to the idea of them being the only genuinely emotional characters in the film. I believe that the constant cutting to eyes forces us to question the truth of what we are seeing and encourages us to look deeper ourselves. The red glow hints at the artificial, we know the hour is fake, as are the replicants. The void conf test is essentially an eye test. The reaction to the scenarios posed indicate the artificial, but what constitutes a negative or positive response? With the themes of the film in mind, it may be replicants that react more emotionally to the scenario proposed, therefore indicating a deeper level of feeling. On a more basic level, the glowing eyes look very cool, and aesthetically add a quirk to the film that really invites more speculation than it does actually say anything more concrete. The effect shots of Blade Runner are not used self-indulgently, as we could have been the temptation, but instead they serve to actually enrich the viewer's knowledge of the film's world. For me, by far the best news comes with Deckard looking over his apartment balcony into the city. It is my favourite Vangelis piece in the film, and transitions to the introduction of Pris show the city on so many levels.
On the first level, we see the vast buildings and neon before moving to the ground with its rubbish and pollution. It is also an indication of the social dynamics of the film. Tyrell lives at the top of a vast pyramid, likewise Deckard lives high above the ground. The idea being the upper classes are literally above the lower classes, which would make sense given the ground levels seem so utterly horrible. One thing I've always liked about Scott's work is the editing. His films are lean as can be and scenes really seem to go on for more beats than is absolutely necessary. It is perhaps a byproduct of that relationship that means this can happen. In the aforementioned killing of Zora, we see her body for just long enough without ever having the impact of the death rammed down our throats. Likewise, the initial testing of Rachel gives us enough information about the procedure and how Deckard works for us to know he's good at what he does and how advanced she is. The passage of time represented through a simple fade between shots and cutaway. It's only after we realise he has asked somewhere near the region of 90 questions. Scott storyboards extensively before each production, and with a little imagination, especially for one so used to filmmaking, it would be easy to envisage the length of the shots and how well they flow together. Intrinsically linked to the film's editing is the film's score. I am mildly obsessed with dance music and electronic music in general. If Angelis' score was released today, we would still consider it a masterpiece. In a neo-noir film, it is a neoclassical score that perfectly encapsulates the world of Blade Runner. The opening bars of the film's Hades sequence combine to give one of the most epic moments in all of cinema. It's hard to think of any other music over this scene that would be so effective in introducing us to the hellish world. I often find films that have a score that has central themes become quite repetitive. The film score is full of notable themes, yet each one has such individuality to it and perfect interpretation of the scene it is being used in. The moment Deckard looks over the city with the cue Blade Runner Blues playing is the perfect example of the recognisable and new. The prolonged notes and mournful tune encapsulate the bleakness of the environment and the darkness at the heart of the film. Likewise, love theme has a suitably romantic element that conveys perhaps more genuine feeling than the characters actually do. It is a theme that is the stable of all chill-out albums, and I've lost count of the amount of times I've heard it on programmes of all varieties. Van Geddes by this point in his career was an Oscar-winning composer for Chariots of Fire, which interestingly was a period piece. The music never seems out of place due to the ethereal quality, which is pardon the pun replicated in Blade Runner. Van Geddes is a native of Greece, a country steeped in ancient history of gods and deities. It's not hard to see that someone born in such an environment would be influenced by the echoes of the past. The images from Blade Runner were inspiring to anyone, to the eyes of Vangelis however, it must have been creative manner from heaven. The diegetic music in the film is also a mishmash of what we can assume is contemporary to the film, as in Taffy's Bar, as well as nods to the past such as One More Kiss Dear. Perfectly in keeping with the different ages we see throughout the film, buildings that have been retrofitted with modern additions in the same way music has been resurrected from a bygone era to accompany the futuristic surroundings. Vangelis has created a pure science fiction score, both classical in style and in nature, but utterly unique nonetheless. Technology is such a recurring element of the film that it is only fitting that the score be electronic. Like the theremin before, Vangelis uses the synthesizer and sound effects to reignite the way in which the science fiction genre is heard. I'm surprised there's not been more pure electronic based musical scores. Certainly composers such as Hans Zimmer use elements of electronic music, but Vangelis' score is one of the only few pieces of pure electronic I can remember. For anyone who enjoys the score as much as I do, I suggest getting hold of the special edition version that came out a few years ago. It is as complete as you could hope for, and along with some additional pieces that are inspired by the film. For me it has been a constant source of inspiration over the years, and I'm more than confident it will be around for many many years to come yet. If Blade Runner feels a little lacking in character, it more than makes up for this in ideas. The world we live in is today is shaped defined by corporations. 
We don't like to admit this, but every time we turn on a tap, switch on a light, or fill up our car, we are creating a demand that is fulfilled by a competing mega corporation who lobby governments to further their own ends and make their boards even richer. Tyrell has a similar hold on the industry of creating life. You can easily make the comparison between Tyrell and God or whatever, but instead I think he's just a futuristic Howard Hughes, powerful beyond comprehension, hold up a world so decadent he may as well be king. Blade Runner isn't exactly visionary in having such a character, but his industry is. We are due an explosion in genetic engineering, once the more fighting is over, and when it happens, there will be a Tyrell, creating life where there was none, and walking a line of commerce and ethics. We are sold products continually on television, internet and in the press. Next time you travel to work, try and make a note of how many times you see advertising. The number soon reaches double figures before you've even arrived. In Blade Runner, the populace are continually bombarded with various products from airlines to computer companies. The most telling, however, comes in the blimps that fly around, setting the off-world colonies with the through line, your chance to begin again. You can see what an utter hellhole Earth has become. We know Sebastian is not able to leave because of his defect, therefore making those left the social and physical dregs of society. It's a horrible thought made even worse by the fact that you would be the subject of constant selling of products, which if you are like me, would drive you around the bend. Perhaps the biggest concept in the film is that of society. Increasingly, societies have become far more ethnically diverse. My home Manchester has various districts that are populated by different races which are gradually expanding. The result is greater interaction and increased in mixed race partnerships, often resulting in children with hugely diverse cultural backgrounds. In Blade Runner, this concept is taken even further. The city appears to have a massive Asian influence, yet the so-called city-speak encompasses a raft of different languages and sayings. Los Angeles 2019 is a foreign country to our eyes, yet I feel there is a yardstick as to how the rest of the world is. If we are to believe that the rest of the world is like this, then we can expect different races and cultures to merge the same way. We know the earth is not the place it used to be, but you can imagine the idea of borders evaporating as people migrate to different places. Just looking at the streets in Blade Runner, and you will see different religions and trends. There is both the retro and the modern, including the so-called cyberpunk look. What particularly appeals to me is the people in Taffy's bar with their long cigarette holders, 1930s style hats. Fashion comes and goes, and it helped make Blade Runner seem so timeless. Looking at Harrison Ford with his crew cut, he doesn't look anywhere near as dated as he did with his Star Wars look. What does therefore amaze me is despite all the different styles and people, they all merge into one, which is kind of the point. There is something to discover every time you watch the film, and just pausing a street scene becomes a who's who of different styles and culture. Blade Runner is such a design-heavy film that every single aspect of it relates to the world that is being created. From newspaper headlines to city-speak, this is one of the most fully realised worlds ever to be put to film. Futurist Sid Mead and an army of designers worked on the film, even going as far as event parking meters that kill non-payers, although for obvious reasons, Scott blocked that one. There is an amazing individuality to the interiors also. Tyrell's chamber has a gothic Egyptian feel to it, with a polished floor to perfection and engraved pillars. Deckard's apartment feels tiny with mosaic tiles on the wall, through to Sebastian's spacious home that looks like the ancient recluse Mishavishan from Great Expectations. Scott retrofitted the sound stages at Warner with pipes and neon to bring them into the future. It's a pattern that has been repeated in the modern world, especially in Manchester. Many of the city's old warehouses have now been converted into modern apartments with glass and neon. I for one love those buildings and how they have been brought into the modern world. Blade Runner, the process has been done with little respect of what has went before. The idea of putting things like pipes and vents on the outside also predates an explosion in style that dominated modern office blocks in the financial areas of London in the 80s. There's also examples of new technology that have been abandoned in the film. During the rooftop confrontation between Deckard and Batty, there are windmills 
no doubt used a form of power production that have long since given up and failed, and of course they are good for diffusing light when showing smoke. Clearly from stories from the set, it was felt by certain parties that this obsessive attention to detail was to the detriment of the film, and given the issues I have with the elements of the story, you can see why Ford was sometimes left waiting on set for hours, whilst minor adjustments were made to the sets and props, only to film a scene, get soaked, and have to wait many hours for his next call. Perhaps that's why Decker looked so pissed off most of the time, given Ford was actually wet and pissed off himself. Technology in the film is grounded in the practical. Spinners don't take off by magic, they emit exhaust, and that all-important and really smoke to add further atmosphere to the scene. The Void Conf device, which is essentially a lie detector, isn't the pretty of machine, yet looks like it actually might have some kind of logic to it. The retina scan looks for pupil dilation with a kind of lung that takes in the breathing of the subject. The fact that it still requires human operation and interpretation indicates this world still requires people to operate things and have a practical participation in the world around them. The sound design also feeds into the world perfectly. Lights that flicker have a suitably dysfunctional buzzing. During Holden's initial interrogation of Lynn, you can hear the very science fiction-esque whirls and beeps. There's no source to these within the scene, but you can imagine the ducts and cables behind the walls carrying data and power through the building, emitting the sounds. Blade Runner's original release came with a voiceover and tacked on happy ending. Contrary to popular belief, Scott was involved with early tapings of the voiceover and selected the footage for the reworked happy ending, yet the film did not find an audience on its initial release. Its reasons for failing are varied, audience expectation, tone, as well as going up against far more family-friendly fare such as E.T. It would take another 10 years for it finally to gain the appreciation it deserves, and it was of course now considered to be a classic, if an influence on culture can still be felt today. Films like The Matrix, The Fifth Element, Equilibrium, all owe a debt of gratitude to the film, as does the world of advertising and music videos. For me, Blade Runner is a film that has all the ingredients of longevity, and every viewing of it I discover something more both visually and in my interpretation of its themes. Although I stated earlier that I actually think Deckard Love Story doesn't really hit the notes I was hoping for, Blade Runner is still an incredible piece of art. Sometimes, and on rare occasions, films do not need character in the traditional sense. Blade Runner, although it has some fantastic character moments such as the tears in the rain scene, is for me a journey into a futuristic society that seems to get more relevant each year. I don't necessarily buy into the transformation of Deckard at the end, but I'm fascinated by the world that has left him so adrift. The bustling streets, the merging of cultures, raise interesting questions. Every year languages actually go extinct as they are consumed by other dialects, as a race we are wasteful to the point where our environment is rapidly descending to a point where vast portions of the ice caps are disappearing. Blade Runner shows the cumulative effect of all this, and more on the individual and how it shapes their existence. There's little joy to be found in its world, and that's why perhaps the film tanks so badly. This is by far Scott's darkest film tonally. Like anyone who has experienced grief, the world around you suddenly changes. Looking at still images on the set of Blade Runner, Scott looks like a man possessed, and you can see why a film like Blade Runner would be the perfect antidote for a grieving mind. Its aesthetic also appealed to every facet of Scott's canon, design and technology, and building immersive environments to transport the viewer to a world that has never really been seen before. Films like Blade Runner will not be made again. There is, need, no, there is no need to go to the length the film does to actually physically build its world, when you can just dream screen it. It's why we should treasure the film as a piece of film history, and it's why I have no doubt the film will still be around in a hundred years time. Whatever version you enjoy most, Blade Runner means many things to many people. For me, it's the final cut each time. It's the closest to Scott's vision as can be, and as a rare occasion when special edition doesn't mean commerce. For Scott's career, it was also a defining moment. No longer was he a visionary talent that made the smash hit alien, he was a pain in the ass Brit who pissed off his crew and put Harrison in a form where all he did was shoot women.
seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark in ten hours of game. In between Blade Runner and Legend, Scott was commissioned to help with the launch of a new computer company named after a fruit. Apple computers were about to be launched into the world, and rightly Scott was brought on board to direct the commercial. You don't need to see the commercial to know that it's a Ridley Scott shot piece. The pastiche of Orwell's 1984, the huddled masses sit listening to Big Brother drone on before a scantily clad lady throws a mallet through the screen. Made with a huge budget for a commercial of just under a million pounds, this was a full-blown production with cinematic aesthetics that rival any of Scott's previous works. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984.
There is a balance to the universe. The struggle to maintain that balance is the stuff of legends. For there can be no good without evil. No love without hate. Life needs death. Innocence feeds lust. There can be no heaven without hell. No light without me. I am darkness. Scott's next feature would be based on an idea that had been floating around with him since The Duelists. After an attempt at making Trist and Ide had fallen through, Scott had begun bouncing the idea around for a possible original fairy tale. That idea would manifest itself into legend, perhaps an even bigger risk than Blade Runner. In 2005, Matthew Vaughan released Stardust. His tagline proclaimed it was the fairy tale that won't behave. It came and went not really finding an audience, more famous instead perhaps for a take that song. But the reason why it failed, in my opinion, was lack of familiarity. Simply referring to previous established works is in my opinion a shallow way of trying to engage with an audience. I feel Legend was made with very much this principle in mind. By taking elements of known source material, such as Snow White and Jack and the Beanstalk, writer William Horsberg cobbled together a story revolving around a princess called Lily, played by Mia Sarah, a young forest boy called Jack, played by Tom Cruise, and the Lord of Darkness played by Tim Curry. Scott wanted to get the fancy genre off his chest before moving into the real world, and after disappointment and critical apathy to Blade Runner, was eager for the same kind of success he had enjoyed with Alien. Legend with a budget of $25 million would be a financial disaster, being extensively recut and rescored. Until this point, Scott had for me scored three successes, one very good and two classic films. Legend, however, is something of a disaster, ambitious in every way, yet the final product simply does not work. In the film's preceding Legend, Scott created worlds with such detail you could not help be drawn into the environments. Legend is no different. Fairy tales seldom take place on an industrial estate in Gravesend. They are of course fantastical, where known logic and biology don't exist. Shot almost completely on stale stages, Legend looks and feels like a living, breathing world, complete with cute animals, billowing blossom, and of course the ever-present smoke. It is a visual work of art that truly needs to be seen to be believed. In every single inch of the scope frame there is something to see, and you can only imagine the effort and love that went into creating the sets. My point of reference for the film was Disney's Sleeping Beauty, and in many respects I'm glad Legend was made pre-CGI, because no one in their right mind would attempt such a bold project post-Avatar. There is no location in the film that does not look incredible, you can see the texture of the walls on the floor, and knowing that everything has been made from scratch is all the more impressive. After Blade Runner, you may have thought Scott wanted to scale back. Far from being smaller in scale, Legend is even more ambitious in its visual scope, but it's also one of its biggest problems. In Blade Runner and Alien, the environment complemented the story and characters. In Legend, however, the environment completely swamps the lead protagonist, which when coupled with the film's other biggest problem, makes it almost entirely incomprehensible. That other problem is the dialogue and its delivery. Jack, please, please, if you're here, say something to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're so clever. Oh! <laughs> Oops! Look inside, see what you can find. That's something to eat. <laughs> I made that for you myself. Well, I, I took it from now. <laughs> Do you like it? Is it sweet? I know someone sweeter. I watched the Region 1 Ultimate Edition of the film with the DTS soundtrack and was for most of the film struggling to understand what the characters were saying and what relevance what they were saying had to the story. The screenplay emulates a perception of what fairy tale dialogue is supposed to be. However, unlike the various source material it's based on, the dialogue and legend cannot be related back to an original work, thereby having no reference point to compare with the film. The delivery of the dialogue also does not aid the process of working out what is going on. In particular Tom Cruise, who in Tom Cruise fashion acts with a slight grin on his face for the entire time. However, he whispers the lines, which I'm sure is meant to be in keeping with the dreamy quality of the film, yet in reality, it's actually jarring to the point of annoyance. The frustrating thing is, you can see the vision and why it's being done, but in order to digest what is going on, you need to know what is happening. Many of the characters also talk in heavily accented voices or through different vocal effects. When, when executed poorly, such as in films like The Phantom Menace, you don't engage with the characters, because you don't really feel like you're getting to know them. In Legend, the character of Honeythorn Gump, or Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings, clearly has his dialogue overdubbed through a voice effect. When he meets Jack, the pair's exchange was extremely hard to hear before he broke out into a kind of fit. What is a bell that does not ring? Yet its knell makes the angels sing. I know the It's moments like this whereby we have no idea what a character is, and no sense of why we should care about them. Sadly, this is all too common in the film. Like all good fairy tales, Legend is about scaring kids shitless. The film has some truly dark moments, most notably a unicorn, who having been darted to death, has its horn hacked from its head. The Lord of Darkness is himself a fairly terrifying creation. The Lord of Darkness looks like a cross between the devil and the bull. If I wasn't told it was Tim Curry, I would have no idea it was him, and that and the effect completely works in creating a realistic character. Indeed, all the makeup effects, like the design of the film, are actually quite fantastic. Yet unlike something like Willow or Labyrinth, they don't have the characters behind them to root for. 
This is the first film where I have to question many of the directorial choices Scott makes. Great portions of the film are shot in close-up, on characters' faces completely filling the frame. Perhaps it's more of a practical choice in order not to have to dress and light all of the set, but in execution, the, very, the film very quickly becomes quite repetitive, which coupled with the awkward dialogue, further fueled my frustrations with it. Tom Cruise and Mia Serra are both pleasant to look at, and there can be no debating how well they are being shot by cinematographer Alex Thompson, but the film feels too compact for much of its duration, which is a pity when the premise is so epic. I also have to question the geography of the film. Take a similar type of film like Labyrinth. The goal of the quest and its location are clearly defined, giving a sense of how far the hero must go in order to complete the task set before them. In Legend, I had no idea where Jack and the team were heading, how they were going to get there, and where they'd come from. The reality was that although the set was big, it could not convey the distance that the film requires. There was a sense that Jack could simply walk 10 metres from one scene into the next. I have no idea where they are when Jack finds his armour, and why it's there in the first place, and what it actually means in terms of character. Likewise, when they go to the Dark Lord's lair, they seem just to simply fall into through the scenery and arrive. The film has a similar narrative style to Hannibal, whereby Lecter can just walk from one scene to the next without any explanation, like how he is able to get on a plane with a missing arm, and also being on the FBI's most wanted list above Osama Bin Laden, and also do so in first class. Everyone involved in the film was blown away by the script by William Horsburgh. Scott, producer R. Milchen, all lavish praise on it, as if it was in the same league as something like The Princess Bride. With this in mind, perhaps this is an example of just poor directing. Of, poor, of course, poor direction leads to scene after scene of pure exposition in order to explain what is going on. But without at least explaining or showing where the characters are in relation to where they are going, the script feels like an assortment of contrived scenes rather than a cohesive, fully realised narrative. It's a script that simply tells us why things are happening, as opposed to explaining why. Without the unicorns, the world will be placed to internal darkness. Well, why? Nothing in the film explains this, we are told it is the case, and for such a crucial plot element, surely this deserves further exploration, perhaps even some kind of backstory to give context. And also in true baddie fashion, rather than just killing the last remaining unicorn, Darkness waits conveniently, giving everyone time to form an escape plan. If the world had been better executed in logic, we could have been shown there was a reason for keeping the last unicorn alive, thus giving Jack's quest greater urgency. The film's climax is anything but climactic. Jack fights Darkness in an underwhelming confrontation in the scene that Scott did before in Alien, complete with Darkness being forced out of the fairy tale version of an airlock. It would be harsh to say the film's direction is bland given how impressive the world of legend is, but the style at this stage in Scott's career feels very tired. There are some truly stunning moments in the film that rank alongside the best in Scott's career. In one scene Jack jumps into a pond from a rock before the scene cuts to a POV shot of him entering the water. It's impressive work, the underwater sequence in particular looks so well framed and beautifully shot, it could teach the likes of Luke Besson a thing or two about shooting underwater. When Jack rises out of the water, the world has frozen over forcing him to smash through the ice to get out. A simple cut and differently decorated set creates a visual transition that is relatively simple to execute, yet works to great effect. you'll break my heart and steal your heart you're dear to me as life itself don't you wish this was our wedding ring if i say yes will my wish come true i'm a princess it's my right to set a challenge for my suitors i will marry whoever finds this ring 
In another sequence, shot in slow motion, two unicorns bolt towards Princess Lily. It's quite safe to assume that the woman in the frame is a stunt person, but any still frame from the sequence would trump any Photoshop creation anyone could knock up today. It's pure practical effects and it's utterly mesmerising. Continuing in the same way as Alien and Blade Runner, Legend is also a very dark film, both tonally and visually. Alex Thompson's cinematography highlights the fantasy nature of the film perfectly, especially during the daylight sequences, quite clearly. There is more than one light source coming into the scene, flooding of a pearl white that gives the scene its otherworldly beauty. Indeed, the cinematography film is impeccable throughout. Shooting on a soundstage effectively gives blank canvas to create lighting effects at will. I will contest that Alien never looks overtly artificial, moreover magical, which is entirely the point. 
Collaborating with Jerry Goldsmith, you have to admire the guy for coming back in the first place. Having had large amounts of his score for Alien dropped in favour of some of the other pieces, you can imagine how annoyed he must have been when his entire score was dropped in favour of a new score by Tangerine Dream. I'm not entirely sure what was the reasoning for the change in score, because Goldsmith's work is typically brilliant throughout the film. I personally find some composers simply riff from previous works over and over, no matter what the film and genre. James Horner in particular, whose work seems to recycle constantly. Goldsmith, however, seems to create a visual palette that is unique to each film he works on, effect perfectly capturing the essence of the screenplay, performance and direction. For Legend, the score perfectly fits and enhances the fantasy elements, brooding where necessary and superly dark when needed. Like his work in Alien, it perfectly enhances what is happening on screen. What really mystifies me, however, is why it was dropped for Tangerine, who incidentally wrote the score in two weeks. I'm actually a fan of Tangerine Dream's work, and it's more of a damning indictment of the power of test tournaments than the judgement of the filmmakers. Perhaps the aspect of the film that impressed me most was the work the actors do with animals. The relationship between man and nature in the fairy tale is normally fairly harmonious. Often animals have speaking roles or actually help the protagonist in some way. Easy on page or in a cartoon, however, but put that into a film and do it for real and things can go very wrong. In Legend, the characters interact with animals seamlessly, birds fly onto shoulders on command, and in one scene Jack sits with a fox cuddled in his arms. It's a pity therefore that Legend is let down by how weak the central story of the film is. You can see why the film was made, the fantasy genre at the time was enjoying a number of hits but Legend is far too dark to appeal to a young audience and lacks the cutesy characters that children can relate to. On another level, adults have little to engage with either. Jack and Lily do not have enough in the way of personality to elevate them to anything other than devices to drive the plot along. Although referencing other materials, Legend does not have enough to become a property in its own right. The Lord of Darkness is indeed an impressive creation and an execution. He is a true baddie, complete with nasty scheming, grim and pointy teeth. Visually, he is a masterpiece of acting and costume, and along with David Bowie in Labyrinth, is my favourite screen bad guy from the 80s. Legend, however, feels far too conceptual to truly engage. I don't think the Deckard story in Blade Runner necessarily worked, but the film had so much more to think about on many levels, it didn't really matter. Legend does not satisfy in its central story. It adds nothing new to the genre, and despite being extremely pretty to look at, lacks any real deeper appreciation other than its aesthetic quality. Indeed, Legend is a visual achievement, but this alone is not enough to elevate the film to more greater heights. Upon its release, Legend was a huge box office disappointment, falling way short of its $24 million budget. When films are recut in a desperate attempt to find an audience, it's often a recipe for disaster, and although the film found a following in the intervening years, Legend perhaps represents the moment in Scott's career where for the first time the film's aesthetic qualities are not complemented by the story being told. For me I found it the film utterly unengaging. Of course it's only my opinion I'm pretty sure that someone could counter all the negative points I have made about the film. However, I do believe that my reservations are justified. Legend has a cult following, and so does Porky's. It will never go down as a bona fide classic of the genre, because unlike a film like Labyrinth, it does not have the hooks to paper over some of the weaker story elements. For the sake of this episode, Legend will represent the moment we take a break from the world of Ridley Scott. So far his feature film career has consisted of a solid period piece, two bona fide classics and a visually impressive yet ultimately flat failure. Commercially, Scott had scored only one certified mega hit in Alien. The Duelist was greatly admired for its visual beauty, whilst Blade Runner had led to conflicts with crew and somehow managed to make a box office disappointment with the man who played Han Solo and Indiana Jones. In retrospect, after Blade Runner Legend, you could have expected Scott to disappear off into director's jail or return to advertising. However, see any interview with Scott and you can tell that he's a man not for messing with. Dispensing with this fantastic, Scott's next film will be based in the real world and the next chapter in his career and this series.
And that's going to be it for this episode. Um, like I said, the next in the series isn't going to follow immediately. And um, I can assure you there won't be such a long break between shows this time. Let me know what you think by emailing me at 24framescast at gmail.com and visit the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Many thanks, and I will speak to you soon. Bye.